come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. to episode number 61 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode is going to be a very special one, as this is going to be my year-end list of my top 2020 horror films, as I'm going to count them down from the Worst one that I saw all the way to the best, and I'll get a little bit more into that when I get to that featured section there, but there are 85 movies that I have seen from this year, so that will all be featured on this, and what I will say is I also kind of say this a little bit into the review as well, but this, I personally don't think is the best year of horror, but it definitely has a lot of very consistent type things there where I have a lot of movies that are very similar in ratings, and then I'm also going to do some mini reviews on here as well of Spree. Circus of Horrors, The Siren, A Good Woman is Hard to Find, The Soul Collector, Spiral, that movie is from 2019, and then The Phantom Carriage. But before I get into those mini reviews, I do want to do my monthly review. So for my monthly review here, in the month of December, I watched 38 total movies, 32 of them were horror films, 13 of those were 2020 releases, so being, you know, new horror movies. And then the percentage that I watched of horror for the month of all the movies was 84.21%. And the horror movies that I watched in that month are Lake of Death, Wrong Turn 4, Bloody Beginnings, The City of the Dead, The House on Skull Mountain, The Mist, Troll Hunter, Blood Vessel, The Ship of Monsters, A Bay of Blood, Don't Listen, Blood Quantum, The Mortuary Collection, The Brides of Dracula, Anything for Jackson, The Platform, Open 24 Hours, Vivarium, Color Out of Space, Devil's Pass, Silent Night, 13 Ghosts, the one from 1960, The Cleansing Hour, Into the Dark Puka, Into the Dark Puka Lives, Gremlins, Possessor, Renapal, Spree, Circus of Horrors, The Siren, Soul Collector, and Spiral. And then, of those, I had 17 different countries that were represented, and those are Norway, Germany, United States, United Kingdom, Australia, Mexico, Italy, Spain, Canada, Ireland, Belgium, Denmark, 
Malaysia, Portugal, Russia, Finland, and South Africa. And then on here, the 2020 watches that I had were Lake of Death, Blood Vessel, Don't Listen, The Mortuary Collection, Anything for Jackson, Open 24 Hours, The Cleansing Hour, Into the Dark, Puka Lives, Renapal, Spree, The Siren, The Soul Collector, and Spiral. And then the oldest watches are all from 1960, and that is The Ship of Monsters, The Brides of Dracula, 13 Ghosts, and Circus of Horrors. The average year of everything would be 2005 for that month. Now the highest rated is going to be on an upcoming special episode and then the lowest rated is going to be on this episode here and that was at a five and when I say that upcoming special episode it's actually going to be airing you know before this one actually gets released as well. Now the average rating of everything is going to be a 7.5 and then not on this feed are just two of them which is the House on Skull Mountain which you could listen to on the podcast under the stairs for their movie club challenge and then a bay of blood was featured on t puts collective for where to begin with giallo now silent night was on an episode of side quest and then gremlins is going to be out the monday of this week which is going to be before this actually gets released as well and then just to give you some of my yearly totals i watched 85 2020 horror movies 362 horror movies overall total films would be 432 and that's all genres then the average year of everything that I watched would come out to be 1999, and then my average rating of everything would be a 7.3, and my percentage of horror for the year is going to be 83.8%. So that's all I really kind of want to get into for my monthly review of December, as well as my yearly review for 2020. So what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is get you over to a musical break before I get into those mini reviews, and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me.
First mini review of this week is going to be Spree from 2020. This is directed and co-written by Eugene Cadolarenko, and then he co-wrote this with Gene McHugh. This stars Joe Keery, Shashir Zamata, and David Arquette. This is a comedy crime thriller film that is from the United States. 
It is currently sitting on a 5.9 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being thirsty for a following. Kurt Kunkel is a rideshare driver who has figured out a deadly plan to go viral. Now, this is another one of those films that I heard podcasters talking about on their shows and on social media. The poster that I saw was kind of intriguing, so when I saw that it was streaming on Hulu, I figured I would give it a viewing for my year-end list. Now, just to kind of delve a little bit more into this, is that Kurt is portrayed by Kiri, and he believes himself to be an influencer, but the problem is he can't really break double digits in interactions or viewers. To make matters worse, his father is Chris, who is portrayed by Arquette, is a DJ with a with a little bit of moderate success. He was the former babysitter of Bobby, who is Joshua Ovell, who has you know made it big in the grand scheme of things on an online presence. Now, Kurt does what he can to leech off of him and then try to build his own following from there. This is where he comes up with hashtag the lesson. Kurt is a driver for a rideshare application called Spree. We watch as he outfits his car with a bunch of cameras that will allow him to film everything for that night. He points out that as he's driving that he's trying to build a brand. And on this day, though, he's going to do something a little bit special. Now, Kurt has lost his grip with reality, though. The first passenger is Frederick. Pegler, who is Linus Phillips. Now he's racist. We see that Kurt is, you know, woke, but I can agree with him for some of the things that he is saying to Frederick. I can't necessarily agree when he kills him, though. The water bottles that he has in the back have been laced with something, and Frederick dies from drinking from it. The next is Andrea Archer, who is Jessalyn Gislick, now who pretty much ignores Kurt, but the problem that he is running into is that the content that he's showing is boring, and really it's only Bobby watching. He is mocking Kurt the whole way, which is, you know, making Kurt more and more unhinged. Now, things take a little bit of a turn here when he's driving a Mario Pisani, who is John DeLuca. Kurt goes to pick up another passenger and it is Jesse Adams, who is Zamata. Now, she is a comedian with a solid following on social media. Mario keeps hitting on her, which annoys her. And then Kurt, on the other hand, though, wants her to shout him out on her social media. And she actually feels bad for him. After dropping her off, Bobby breaks the news to Kurt that his content is boring and he doesn't buy that he's actually killing these people. This causes Kurt to snap and go more extreme with what he's doing. The more reckless he becomes, the more viewers he gets. This high that he's running on now, though, is leading to his eventual fall since he can't keep up what he's doing, you know, realistically. Now, this is a movie that doesn't have the deepest story, but what it's doing at its core is pretty interesting with how it digs into some of the things that we've seen before. We have this character study of Kurt, now, he so badly wants to be famous. What is interesting, though, is he just doesn't have it. He's a bit awkward, and the content he's putting out there really isn't that much different from other things that you would see already online. The problem that he has is that he's doing things that others have already done, so no one really likes him. He does come up with an idea of going on this killing spree, hence the title. I also really like that the name of the rideshare app is also Spree. I think that's just creative what they're doing there overall. Now, I will say, the idea of being internet famous is really explored here as well. Now, I'll be honest, I really don't get it. I don't understand how all these kids and teens out there are following these people religiously. I have a social media presence, but like I don't put enough time or effort into you know, really kind of get any bigger than what I already have kind of going. And I don't really do anything that much different. So like I can understand why I will never be internet famous. This is something that is wrong with our world, though, and I honestly feel like it's quite detrimental. These people are being worshipped for no reason, in my opinion. 
there is an interesting message from Jesse at the comedy club as we lose kind of sight what's really important and we don't really experience the moment. Hence why I don't really think I'll ever put in much more effort or time that I have already in the social media that I have. But I don't know if this movie would work if the acting wasn't good. Nobody really puts in an award-winning performance, but they don't have to. Kiri is, of course, famous from Stranger Things, and he does a great job in this movie as our lead. It is interesting how different this role is from the one in Stranger Things, because in this he's very socially awkward and just doesn't get it. He does an excellent job with, you know, performing as this. Zamata is really good as someone who has found their niche, and she can see beyond it now, now though, that she has, you know, gotten to where Kurt wants to be. Uh, Arquette, and then we have Misha Barton and Lala Kent are all solid in their cameo roles. The rest of the cast just rounded this out for what was needed. And the next thing I kind of wanted to go into here would be the found footage aspect. Kurt is recording everything with cameras mounted on his vehicle, and we also get different things like phones that are recording different things, or even body cams. The movie is edited together in such a way that it's interesting in my opinion, and the found footage aspect works. It makes sense as to why everything would be recorded with how obsessed Kurt is, you know, with doing this. The effects are also pretty subdued, but they're done practically, which is always good. And I like the bit of blood and gore that we get that works here. So I think this is an interesting look at how society is today with social media. I think it really is bringing out the dangers. And I mean, we've seen some of these things that are fairly similar of people wanting their 30 seconds of fame. So they'll kind of do things that we get in this movie. thought the acting was pretty solid across the board. The only thing I really haven't brought up would be the soundtrack. And I thought that was fit for what was needed. I would say overall that this is a good movie probably just slightly under good technically so it's probably just above average but i came in with a 7.5 out of 10 here and then i followed that up with watching circus of horrors from 1960 this is directed by sydney hayers it was written by george baxt it stars anton differing erica remberg and yvonne monlar this is a drama horror film that is from the united kingdom and it is currently sitting on a 6.1 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being in 1947 England, a plastic surgeon must beat a hasty retreat to France when one of his patients has a ghastly problem with surgery. Once there, he operates on a circus owner's daughter and assumes ownership as payment. Now, this is an interesting movie that when I saw the title while looking at horror films from 1960, it intrigued me. I was trying to find a movie to pair this up as a featured review previously, but I decided that I would just end up making it the last journey through the aughts film for 2020. All I really knew coming in was the title, and that I also noticed that it popped up when I was looking at Donald Pleasant's movies, as he is, you know, has a kind of cameo role here. And I had heard Moods from the 22 Shots of Moods and Horror bring this up, as how wild his performance was, so I was pretty kind of excited to see that. So to kind of just delve a little bit more into the story here is that we're seeing a woman go crazy in a remote cottage. Now, she is Evelyn Morley and portrayed by Colette Wilde. She has removed her bandages and what she has seen has upset her. Now, trying to find her is her father, Dr. Morley, who is portrayed by William Mervyn. And then at the time is her fiancé is Edward Finsbury, portrayed by John Mervale. Now, there seems to be talk that a doctor was told not to operate on her, so they're assuming that she's been kidnapped or upset. We see that the doctor in question is Posteer, portrayed by Differing. Now, he's fleeing and actually runs through a barricade of people. Now, this causes him to crash his car, which leads to a fiery result. He does survive and get into the house of Angela, who is Jane Hilton, and then her brother of Martin, who is Kenneth Griffith. The trio flees to France. The two helped with the scarring and changing of Posteer's face, and he's now assuming the identity of Dr. Schuler. Now, they're trying to lay low, but Dr. Schuler wants to, you know, still work his magic. 
This leads them to a circus. They ask a young girl of Nicole Vanette, who is portrayed at this age by Carla Chanaller, for directions, but she doesn't really seem to know how to answer them. Now, she tells Schuler to ask her father. Now, he runs the circus and is portrayed by Pleasance, and then Schuler makes Vanette, who is Pleasance, a deal. He will fix Nicole's face as it is defigured due to bombs from World War II. In return, he wants to run the circus. It will still belong to Vanette, but behind the scenes, it is signed over to Schuler. After an untimely accident with a drunken Vanette and a dancing bear, Schuler ends up assuming full control. Now, the circus ends up becoming a front for Schuler and his two assistants. We ship 10 years into the future. His plan is to seek out that need his surgical abilities, help them, and force them at, into performing into the circus as payment. Schuler can't reveal who he truly is, and the people he is helping have pasts as well. The first is a thief and killer by the name of Alessa Caro, portrayed by Remberg. Now, the circus is performing currently in Berlin. Alessa is upset that she doesn't have top billing, and Schuler's current favorite is Magda von Meck, who is portrayed by Vanda Hudson. Now, she wants to leave as she is engaged to marry a rich man in the area, but the circus has taken on the moniker of the Jinx Circus, as the stars, when they seem to want to leave, meet untimely demises that look like accidents. They end up going to England next, and Scotland Yard sends Inspector Arthur Desmond, portrayed by Conrad Phillips, to look into what's going on here. Now, I do want to say, this is an interesting mashup of two different types of movies. We're getting the Mad Scientist film with Schuler as he wants to continue to operate on these beautiful women. He also doesn't want to give them up when they want to leave, and this is all done with the other half of this movie, which would be the circus film. I feel this is an underrated location for movies, and it also oddly works pretty seamlessly, you know, combining these two together. Now, to break these both parts down a little bit further, Dr. Schuler, Angela, and Martin are really skilled at what they do. It appears that what forces them out of England is that they bit off more than they could chew in trying to help Evelyn. This wouldn't be able to work as easily today, but Jamie and I did listen to a podcast about a doctor that was really bad at what he did, hurt and killed a bunch of people, but he was still allowed to continue practicing medicine. So it is possible. Here, though, he just changes his name and continues on like nothing happened. Something that should be pointed out here, though, is that Dr. Schuler is really talented. He helps Alyssa, Nicole, Magda, and Melina, who is portrayed by Yvonne Romain, and I should also point out that Nicole, at an older age, is portrayed by Monlar. He reconstructed all of their faces. He doesn't want them to leave, though, as he feels that they owe their lives to him. And he is really just kind of dealing with a God complex that causes him to, you know, think he's above the law. And it works out for him that Martin helps to stage the accidents. And I mean, it is a circus where things like this could happen. They're doing it too much, though, and it's come on to everybody's radar. Now, to kind of break down the circus part of the film, I've already said I love it, and I think it's one we don't see enough of. It tends to be a bit cheesy, though, and I should point out that this one did a really good job as they worked with a real circus here to make these scenes look and feel real, and that does help for sure. This also allows for animals like bears, lions, and a gorilla to be used for attacks in the movie, so I did enjoy seeing that. Now, as for the effects, this movie kind of really does shy away from showing a lot of things, I wouldn't say that it ruins it though, and a lot of this feels like it could be due to coming out in 1960, so they were limited on either budget, ability to do what they could, or just censorship. The after effects though are fine, and the blood is a bit bright as this movie is in color, and I thought it was good and the cinematography was solid. As for the acting, I thought that Differing does a great job as this mad scientist. He just has such an arrogance about him that fits, and it feels like everything he is saying to those around him is gospel and not to defy him. It works very well in his performance for this role. 
This movie does a great job with getting some beautiful women that Dr. Schuler is helping. The backdrop of the war in the state of Europe after makes sense as to why these women are scarred. Remberg does great as this feisty one who will fight back. Monlar is so cute and innocent, and I just have a crush on her. Romain and Hunson are also quite attractive. And I like that Hilton and Griffin as this brother-sister duo that are completely, you know, with Dr. Schuler. But as it goes on, we see that they're pretty jaded on his treatment of them. I did enjoy the cameo by Pleasance, and the rest of his cast rounded us out for what was needed. Now, I just have briefly wanted to go over the soundtrack. The selections fit for the most part. It does appear that they actually purchased the rights or had this song made for it. It called A Look for a Star by Gary Mills. They get every penny's worth by playing it a lot. I did enjoy it the first time I heard it, but then they just kept playing it over and over again, and I will admit, I did get a bit annoyed with it by the end. Aside from that, I think the soundtrack works for what was needed. So, just in conclusion here, I thought this was an interesting mashup of a movie. The concept of this mad scientist using this circus as its front really does work for me. And I think that the only thing that would have made it a little bit better is if they would have shown us a little bit more of the deaths and kind of went a little bit heavier with the effects there. Overall, though, I found this to be another above-average movie and came in with a 7.5 out of 10 and would recommend giving a viewing of this, especially if you like movies from this era for sure. And then I watched another 2020-wide release of The Siren. This is written and directed by Perry Blackshear. This stars Margaret Ying Drake, McLeod Andrews, and Evan Dumonchel. This is a fantasy horror film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 4.7 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a man searches the lake for the monster that murdered his husband, while that monster falls in love with an unsuspecting visitor. Now, this is another one of those earlier films that got a wide release in 2020 that I heard about pretty early on. I added it to a list of potential watches and decided during December that when I was running through titles, I would give this one a go. All I knew is that it involved a lake, a creature, and that was about it. And I will say, the siren is an interesting mythological creature for me, so I was kind of cool to, uh, when I saw that there was a movie about it that I would give it a go. Now, for this one, we first learned about the creature, and what I like here is that the movie is establishing its own mythos for the siren. There's a quote from Nietzsche as well that, which is done out of love, always takes place beyond good and evil. Then we get the tale of the Rusalaka, or the siren. In this case, it's an ordinary young woman that drowns and becomes a vengeful creature, drawing all those that come closer to her lake. Living in the area is Al, who is portrayed by Andrews. He's the married man from the synopsis, and we get voiceover narration throughout this of him lamenting over Michael, who drowned in the lake. He believes that there is a creature that killed him in it, and I think part of this is needing to focus his grief and not wanting to accept that his husband could have killed himself. Coming to visit this lake, though, is Tom, who is Dumochelle, now, he's a mute who is quite religious, and we hear him listening to voicemails from a pastor or someone who is very close to him that really likes to relay scripture. Now, Tom really hasn't experienced much of life from what I gather, and I think that this is in part due to his disability. He seems to have been staying in a cabin by this lake and that he's, you know, afraid of the water. Now, an accident while swimming caused him to be in this condition, and I thought that he was trying to face his fears by coming here. Arriving at this lake that first night, we meet Nina, who is portrayed by Drake. She seems shocked to see him there, and the two of them do hit it off, though, as a friendship. Tom also meets Al, and they form a bond of friendship. Nina is hiding a terrible secret, and this becomes a journey for all three of these characters to find themselves. Now, that's all I feel I need to relay for the story to get you up to speed here, as there isn't a lot to it. It is a film about relationships and the changes that come over people through them with the backdrop of this creature looming over this location. 
Now, I've already broken the characters down a bit, but I think I need to go a little bit more in depth as that is a big focus here. Now, the first one to look at is the one creating problems with Nina. From the information that we get, we know that she's a tragic character. Her heart was broken, so she killed herself in the lake. She has then become this creature that will kill those that get close to it. She cannot leave the water completely. There needs to be at least a part of her in it at all times, and we get to see what happens when she tries to, as she attempts to prove this to Tom, which is an interesting scene. They don't make Nina monstrous, though. That is something I found interesting. Her voice distorts and her eyes change, and that's about it. Now, she does question herself, though, when she falls in love with Tom and does seem to want to change. I do like this idea of love conquering the evil angle that they're going for. Now, since I've already kind of delved into him a bit, I'll go next to Tom. His character has a disability, and from what I gathered, it has sheltered his experiences on life. I feel this naivety that he has is reflected in him falling for Nina. She has her own issues, and it is just two people that are broken finding each other. He's a good guy, though. He easily befriends her and Al, which I did like to see. His kindness is a bit of his downfall, though, as well. Now, what would be the final character is Al. He's had to deal with tragedy of what happened to Michael. It gets him on this path to kill what killed him. I think this is him actually not dealing with his grief, though, by focusing on a task. Now, we know that there's a monster here, though. And then when he first meets Nina, he realizes his folly and then turns to hating Michael for killing himself. I do like that there is this truth of all of this that leads to our climax and that I like that we get to see him question himself on a couple different things. Now, we only really have these three people as our cast, and we really get to meet them, and I do like the character development. The problem is that this movie is boring. I feel that everything I gave you here could have been a strong 30 to 40 minutes short. This gets drug out to an hour and 20 minutes, which really just had trouble caring for a good stretch. Not enough of it to you know really warrant the extra time, and things get repetitive in my opinion. We needed more to happen in, for it to kind of actually work better. So next would be the effects. We really don't get a lot, which is odd for a creature feature. We do have Nina's eyes changed to black, and I did like that, and I believe that there were also some colored filters for the lights that I didn't mind. We never see Nina become anything monstrous, which would have worked a little bit better if we did. I also feel that Drake didn't want to be nude as her character is dressed every time that we see her. It doesn't necessarily need to be, you know, but I just think a creature like this would probably just swim around nude, but I'm not going to hold anything against the movie, again, you know, kind of question anybody's morals or anything they would like to do, because I do think her performance was good. But the cinematography outside of that was fine. The last thing to go over here would be the soundtrack. They had this great women's choir to do the music. It really gives a haunting feel, which fits the tone of the movie. It is one that I do think I might actually seek out for the soundtrack as, like, background music while I'm writing, because it was done that well. And I also really liked... In hearing the distortion of Nina's voice as the creature. So this is just one that I really like the concept in theory. I do like taking this mythological creature and doing their own thing with it. The problem though is that I just wanted a bit more with that. The performances of our characters though were good and they're really the only ones in our cast. I even like the soundtrack for the movie and the effects that we get were solid. I just think this would have worked better as a short and just kind of has too much padding for me to really enjoy or they needed a subplot to kind of deepen some things in my opinion. I just feel like this is a middle-of-the-road movie, though. There's some good elements and some that just really kind of bothered me. So I'm going to say this is average and come in with a 5 out of 10 on this movie. And then one that I'm going to briefly go over, but it's not really a horror movie, would be A Good Woman is Hard to Find. This is directed by Abner Pastel. This is written by Ronan Blaney. This stars Sarah Bulger, Edward Hogg, and Andrew Simpson. This is a 
crime drama thriller that is from the United Kingdom and Belgium. It is currently sitting on a 6.2 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd. And we have our synopsis here is a recently widowed young woman will try to go to any lengths to protect her children as she seeks the truth about her husband's murder. Now, as I said, this one isn't a horror movie. I know it was on Shudder, but I feel like they picked it up. I mean, it does have some dark elements to it, but it's really just more of like a crime movie. But what I will say is that everyone seemed to be pretty high on it. So then I was questioning if it was horror, so I was going to give it a viewing and then decided from there. After seeing it, this is more of a crime drama, as I said, and this does go to some dark places. This woman of Sarah, portrayed by Sarah Bolger, does really go through a lot. And I think Bolger's performance plays it so well. She's constantly told how bad her husband was, and that is why he was murdered. And I think he, she does an excellent job in showing how perceptions can be wrong to not judge a book by its cover. Sarah here in the movie goes through a lot of things and fights to keep her family together. Really solid film for sure, and I'm glad that I gave it a viewing. There are just some good things done with the cinematography here as well, the, as the visual effects and soundtrack, but I would definitely say a good movie overall. And I came in with an 8.5 out of 10 on this movie. But back to a more mini review here of The Soul Collector, or its original title of Eight. This was directed by Harold Hoschler, who also co-wrote this along with Johannes Fernandan von Ziel. This stars Tasha Mano Sibi, Inge Beckman, and Kita Luna. This is a horror film that is from South Africa. It is currently sitting on a 6.3 on IMDb and a 2.8 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being an old man fated to collect souls for eternity, seeks atonement for trading his daughter's soul. Now this is another movie that I decided to give it a go as I was saying as I was looking through Shudder. Now it popped up on my radar when a podcast was going through their 2020 watches and it was mentioned there. I didn't remember a lot about it, but they did say that they thought the original title of 8 was better before switching over to the title that we have here of The Soul Collector, which was a bit generic. Now, I want to kind of delve a little bit into this, is that the title's a little bit misleading. We have a man in bed, and we hear ominous, heavy footsteps. As much later, we will learn that the man in bed is named Zeal, portrayed by Graham Clark, and then the guy who comes into his room is Lazarus, portrayed by CB. Now, he puts a bag down, and there is something alive in it, and Zeal is terrified. Lazarus leaves, and we see that whatever he has done, Zeal is now dead and has, like, white eyes and looks like his mouth is, like, black, and something as bad has really happened here. The movie then shifts us over to a car that is driven by William, portrayed by Garth Breitenbach, and with him is his wife of Sarah, portrayed by Beckman, and then in the backseat is their niece of Mary, portrayed by Luna. They're going to pay respects to Mary's parents, as it appears they died in a car crash, but Will and Sarah cannot have children of their own, so they have taken in Mary. Now, they're going out to a family farm since Will's father has passed away. Through interactions, we see that Mary is bright for her age and has maturity despite you know still being a child. But Sarah is quite overprotective. The small family goes about settling in when Mary goes into the woods. She encounters Lazarus there. The two of them talk about silkworms and moths. And in the end, Mary reveals that she is lost and asks if he will help her back to the farm. It upsets Will that she went into the forest and Sarah that she came back with Lazarus. She wants him to leave where Will wants him to help as he learns that this man worked for his father on the farm. This couple tends to bump heads due to how much she worries about things, but she does relent and Lazarus is allowed to stay in the shutout back. 
He might not be the person that they think he is, though. The nearby village has an elder of Obara, portrayed by Chris April. It is believed that Lazarus is a demon that traded his soul to bring his daughter back. It has cursed him and the opening lines of the movie of Lazarus being a wanderer. The village is standoffish when Will goes to meet with them, but this could be that he brought Lazarus with him. This man is hiding a secret and is much more terrifying than the family realizes. So that's where I'm going to leave my recap as that gets you up to speed. Where I want to start is about the lore of this movie. I've already said that I'm a big fan of learning about folklore from other places, as it's quite interesting to me. Even more so if this is something that is based in reality where, you know, not just made up for a movie. We get an interesting explanation here that Lazarus lost his daughter of Vijuva, who is portrayed by Owam Amy, in a fire. In his grief, he traded his soul so that his daughters would come back. This really is a take on the be careful what you wish for story, as what ends up happening is that his daughter is different when she comes back. And I mean, now that I'm actually recording this, it almost is a lot like, you know, Pet Cemetery, where dead might be better. This does play on his emotions, and it causes him to make bad decisions. The original title of this movie, as I said in my opening, was Eight. And it also appears that there was a subtitle of a South African horror story. The Eight does come into play with this, but not necessarily how I thought it would play out. This would have been a much better title, I think, if the numbers, you know, won't make it so hard to find, since it's actually something that does play into this. And then the subtitles is a bit too long. Changing it to The Soul Collector does alert horror fans while also turning them off as it's a bit generic for, you know, some of the things that we've already said here. Being that this is in South Africa and set in 1977 is interesting. There's a bit of racist undertones with things that are, you know, happening here, which is fitting for this country and its history. Sarah is distrustful of everyone. She doesn't like Lazarus, but I'll be honest though, I don't find her to be racist against him. She's just distrustful of outsiders. The same could be said for the villagers near the farm and why they don't like Will. What is interesting is that they don't have an issue with Sarah, Mary, or Will, aside from the fact that they're allowing Lazarus to stay and work there. This brings me back to the original point, is that I don't really think that there's racism here actually, but distrust of outsiders and misunderstandings. To swing this back around to the lore, I want to delve a little bit more into this demon here. And I believe it goes by the name of Uthuli, and it's, in the movie it's done by Eve Maxagazo. It was taken over the body of Vizuizva when Lazarus made the bargain. This entity eats souls that Lazarus is collecting. What is interesting here is that we also double down with the lore about how human souls can, you know, latch onto moths. This is important here is that we see that Lazarus is doing what he does. The souls appear as a moth that Uthuli eats. Having Mary love moths and knowing of the folklore of the indigenous people does add an element to here as well. I'll be honest, it is these parts that really pull my interest in what they're getting at here, and I also don't think it's a coincidence that they named the main character of Lazarus either. Now moving away from the story, I'll go next to the acting. I thought CB was good as Lazarus. What I like about him is that he's a likable guy while also hiding the horrible plan and doing these terrible deeds. He easily befriends Mary and William, but we see that he has other motives. He did lack some emotions for me when he needed to at a couple scenes, if I'm going to be honest. Beckman was really good, though, as his overprotective mother-like character. In the, in the end, though, she's right about things, which we know while those around her don't. Luna plays this role of Mary very well. She's quite stoic, and that makes her seem older than her years while still being a child. If I have an issue, though, I just think she's a bit too wooden at times. I don't want to harp too much, though, as she is a child. Breitenbach... April and Luxolo Nababi 
and the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed with shoutouts to Amy and Moxagazo as being the creatures. And I do want to say, if I mispronounce any names for this movie, I do apologize. I'm trying my best here, but there is, you know, some... I'm not very good at this. Speaking of which, I will go next to the effects, though, and the eyes. This is something that when they've lost their souls, their eyes go white. Lazarus does as well when he's, you know, doing these things to take over the souls. There are some really good glowing effects for Vizuva when I, you know, I did enjoy that. It appears that for the most part, they went with practical effects for this movie, which does work. And there might have been a little bit of CGI, but it really just there to enhance things, so I don't have much of an issue there. The cinematography was also well done. Now, in conclusion, I'm really glad that I, you know, ended up delving into this movie is I really enjoyed seeing this folklore from South Africa play out. This is really has an interesting social commentary about not trusting outsiders and who we should actually trust. I thought the acting was solid and there's just a few issues here and there. Didn't really have any problems with the effects and the soundtrack really fit for what was needed. My issue though is that I feel like it's a little bit slow. Overall, I do enjoy this and rate this as an above average. It's just lacking a bit for me to go any higher but I will say, you know, I did enjoy for what they're doing here. And I came in with a 7 out of 10 on this movie. And then I watched Spiral from 2019. This is another one that is getting its wide release, though, in 2020. This is directed by Curtis David Harder. And it was co-written between Colin Minahan and John Poliquin. This stars Jeffrey Bauer Chapman, Ari Cohen, and Jennifer Laporta. This is a drama horror mystery thriller that is from Canada, and it is currently sitting on a 5.6 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a same-sex couple move to a small town to enjoy a better quality of life and raise their daughter with strong social values, but when neighbors throw a very strange party, nothing is as it seems in their picturesque neighborhood. Now, this is another movie that popped up on my radar when I was trying to check out movies that were, you know, getting some buzz while doing my end-of-year list for 2020. I knew this was on Shudder and that it could potentially be dealing with cults. The latter is something that really interests me, but aside from that, I came in pretty blind. Now, another one that I will say that I think the synopsis is a little bit misleading as we do start this off with a gay couple in the back of a car making out. Something happens causing one of them to get out and the scene ends with the other one sobbing over the body. We then shift this over to 1995. We have a gay couple of Malik, portrayed by Bauer Chapman and Aaron, who is portrayed by Cohen. And also with them is their daughter of Kayla, who is Laporta. Now, Aaron is her true father from a previous marriage. They're moving from the city to a small town. Kayla isn't thrilled as she is leaving behind a boyfriend. Now, the new family goes to settle in, and soon after, we meet one of their neighbors, Tiffany, portrayed by Chandra West. She doesn't realize until bringing over a flower that they are a gay couple, but she is quite accepting. Not everyone is as nice, though. Malik comes home one day from a run and sees that somebody broke in and wrote a derogatory slur on the wall. He paints over it before Aaron can see it. He also installs a security system, which upsets Aaron as well. And a lot of this is because that Aaron is the one who is bringing in most of the money here. This security system it costs a lot of money, and Malik really is trying to ensure that he can sell this book that he's writing as he's doing a little bit of ghost writing but the problem is he has not been paid i don't think yet and then speaking of what he's writing is it's over this person named charles darrelson who is portrayed by david Lorraine. he is someone who believes in the traditional family unit and in conversion therapy so being malik being gay this bothers him and he no longer wants to write it the break-in shakes him up as does this creepy older man of mr reinhardt portrayed by paul mcgaffey 
who tries to break in, but when Malik confronts him, the man might not be as crazy as he's letting on. He also gives a piece of paper to Malik, and there is nothing on it, or so it seems. More weird things start to happen, like dead raccoons are found in the attic above Kayla's bed. Their blood leaks through onto her. They meet Tiffany's husband of Marshall, who is portrayed by Lachlan Monroe, and Malik sees an odd picture of an ancestor of his that looks very similar to him, and there's also an old book that they have with a spiral symbol on the spine. Malik looks into what he thinks is going on, but things aren't always real, or is he piecing together things that are just unrelated? Now, there's a history of trauma that could be also causing him to have a mental break. So that's where I want to leave my recap here, but I really like what this movie's doing here, and I like that it's kind of interesting to set it back in 1995. I will say that even though we're in 2020, where we're more of accepting of things like same-sex marriage or even just couples, we aren't fully there yet. Having this couple move to a small town is interesting since, personally, I'm from a small town where they can be much more closed-minded. I do like, though, that Marshall and Tiffany are accepting of them, and part of this could be that they are more liberal-minded or just they've gotten to know them enough where it's not an issue anymore. Where I really want to focus next would be Malik. We keep getting flashbacks of an attack that he witnessed back in the day. At first, I wasn't sure if it was Aaron that was with him, but we learned that it was someone else. This has really cut him deep, but I also think that it helped him to be more vocal for not only his rights, but also gay rights. I'm also saying that while I'm writing this is that I hate that I need to differentiate between the two, but then the break-in that has happened in their new place triggers some bad memories, and some of the weird stuff is happening to him. I like here that he's descended into madness, and that makes him unreliable. We see that what he's seen, but we don't know if everything that he's seen is real until the explanation. Now, I'm not going to necessarily confirm or deny here if there is a cult or not, but I like how they handle this. We see fairly early on that Marshall and Tyler are watching a ritual that is taking place in their house. Malik is watching from his window, and it does seem to involve a spiral in, the, in a kind of sense. The thing is, though, there is a normal explanation here when it's brought up afterwards. Since Malik is becoming unhinged, we can't necessarily believe him. They do some creepy things with hooded figures as this goes on, and I'll be honest, part of what really pulls me into this movie is them. There are just some great reveals that come from Malik's investigation on top of all of that. What I'm going to say next feels a little bit weird is that I love how fast this movie goes, as it really doesn't waste any time getting into it. It does hook me from the beginning, and then I'm there until the final reveal. My issue, though, is that I think that they moved too fast and they could have kind of added a little bit more story and fleshed some things out a little bit. It plays a lot with blackouts where Malik doesn't remember things that happened and we don't necessarily know if some of them happened or not. Now my issue here though is I want a bit more backstory and I think that like I said it just moves too fast where I think a little bit more could have been revealed to kind of deepen everything in my opinion. As for the acting though I thought that it was really good. Bauer Chapman does a great job as our lead here. He has a solid screen presence, but what really works for him, though, is that we establish him, and then we see him descend into madness. With how it is presented, I feel bad for him. I wanted to know more, and I wanted him to be able to prove things, but the logical explanations are all against him. That works for me. Cohen is solid as a counterpart to him and the rock of the family. We need him to be grounded in reality, which is what we get here. Laporta is solid as the daughter. I really like how she loves her progressive family, but also she makes some bad choices as teens will do. Now, Wood, Monroe, and West are all good as this family that you know could be harboring a secret, and the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. So then really the last thing to kind of delve into here would be the effects, where we actually don't get a lot of them, if I'm going to be honest, and I'm not mad about that. This helps to kind of play with the idea that nothing could really be happening here and allows me to piece things together. 
What we do get here is done practically. I thought the blood that we got here looked really good. The cinematography is also well done, especially with the editing to show us as someone is blacking out and kind of confused about everything when they come out of that. There would be a bit of CGI, and if there is, I didn't really notice it, and it was used pretty seamless, so I don't have any issues there. So now, to kind of end this all here, I thought that this movie was some, has some really good aspects. I love the idea of this cult in this town and kind of doing things that we have someone who has been traumatized in the past as they're sinking into madness from a triggering event, so we don't necessarily know what is real and what's not. Regardless, though, I love how this plays out. The acting helps bring this to life. And if I do have any issues here, I just feel like they could have deepened the story just a little bit, in my opinion. And for that reason, I had to come in with a 7.5 out of 10 on this one. And then I end up watching The Phantom Carriage. This is from 1921. It goes by the original title of Cor Carlin. This is directed by Victor Sostom, who also came up with the screenplay. And this comes from the novel from Selma Langeroff. This stars Victor Sostom, Hilda Borgstrom, and... Tor Svenberg. This is a drama fantasy horror film that is from Sweden and it is currently sitting on a 8.1 on IMDb and a 4.0 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being on New Year's Eve. The driver of a ghostly carriage forces a drunken man to reflect on his selfish, wasted life. Now this is a silent film that I actually had never heard of until I got into listening to podcasts. One of the hosts on the 22 Shots of Moods and Horror, I think it was Jeremy actually, saw this in class and then recommended it to the other two guys on the show. And it is actually in their Hall of Fame, so when I was doing a horror movie challenge that they put forth, I figured that I would check this one out under that category. I didn't know a whole lot about it aside from that it was silent and not from the United States. And I've also given it a rewatch here as part of my Centennial Club for here on the podcast. So I'll just go a little bit deeper into the story here is that we have a nun who works for the Salvation Army. She is dying of consumption on New Year's Eve. Her name is Edith, and she's portrayed by Astrid Holm. And she asks her mother of Concordia Salander, as well as another nun of Maria, who is Lisa Lundholm, to try to find somebody named David Holm to visit her before she passes. They go out to do so, but they can't seem to find him anywhere. They also enlist the aid of Gustafsson, who's portrayed by... Tor Vigen. As he joins the search, he finds David drunk in the cemetery. Now, David is, is portrayed by the writer and director as well as star of Solstrom, and he refuses to come with him. He's there with two of his friends, and they're getting sauced up. A story is told about a guy that they knew by the name of Georges, who's portrayed by Svenberg. He is supposed to be one of the smartest guys they know. But he was terrified of a superstition that if you're the last person to die before the new year, you become the driver of the phantom carriage. This makes you a disciple of death, and you must collect souls for the dead for one year. But the problem here is that it feels like an eternity as each day feels like a hundred years. Now David is hit in the head with a bottle, and when he looks up, Georges has arrived with the phantom carriage. David is informed that he will be the driver for the next year. He tries to plead to be taken to the hospital... And that he doesn't want to die, but Georges states that if he appears, then it's too late. He then shows him the events of his life and why he deserves to be the next driver. And we see how he ruined the life of his wife of Mrs. Holm, portrayed by Borgstrom, their children, his brother of Einar Axelson, as well as Edith. He pleads for his wife to stop a horrific act that could completely alter the lives for the worst. Now, I wanted to be a little bit vague with this recap even though that this movie is now, you know, pretty much 100 years old this year. 
There isn't really a whole lot to the story, though, to be honest, but it does give off a lot of vibes of, like, a Christmas carol, except instead of being visited by three ghosts, he is being faced with being the driver of the phantom carriage, and then it's, you know, showing how David has wasted his life. Now, I do kind of want to read the novel this is based off of, just to see how close the written work is to A Christmas Carol, as well as to see how well this movie follows everything with that. But what I also kind of find interesting here is that David is an extremely bitter man. He's a heavy drinker, and he gets his brother into trouble by corrupting him to drink, and really doesn't do anything to help anyone around him. He loses his family due to how he acts, but when his life leaves him, while he's locked up for being drunk, he blames her as well as his children. He really doesn't take any responsibility for his actions, and he's also spreading consumption, which is quite of a deplorable act, especially, you know, watching this during a pandemic. Now, the opposite of him would be the character of Edith. She's a nun working for the Salvation Army. She has made a statement that on this New Year's Eve that she wants David to come stay at the place when they, you know, had just opened it. Now, she hopes that God would change his life over this year. But we see that, you know, by the end of, you know, as this year is coming to an end, that he has not changed his ways at all. And she's still hoping that she can, you know, sway him as she's such a good person. But David really does not deserve everything that he is, that she is doing for him. I really like the lore of this phantom carriage idea. It's really an interesting concept. And I like this as a punishment. Now, I'm actually quite interested to see if this is something that really is in their lore over there or not. Because I do find it to be pretty interesting. I thought the acting was really good. It's kind of interesting that being a silent film that they aren't really overacting, which is what you normally would see from an era like this. I thought that Swordstrom was really good as David. He's such a garbage human being, but he got a reaction out of me, which is what I'm looking for in you know acting performances is some sort of reaction. Borgstrom is good. I feel bad for her what she puts up with. Svenberg is solid as a driver of the Phantom Carriage. I really like Holm because I think she has a good heart and really embodies being a good Christian. She warms my heart as well for how good she is for someone who doesn't really deserve it. And I think the rest of the cast is just fine and rounds us out for what was needed. I thought the effects were pretty well done for being, you know, from 1920. They do this really cool effect where they're overlaying two films over each other to give this ghost effect. And I think it's really kind of cool what they're doing to show, you know, for the spirits as well as the phantom carriage itself. The film is shot very stationary, but we do get a little bit of camera movement that I've noticed. And they also use the iris effect. And the last thing to kind of go over real quick would be the soundtrack. Much with these silent films, I'm not sure if this is what was naturally intended to go with it. I think that what they have paired up with it was pretty solid. And there's actually a few different scenes that, you know, gave me chills with how well it was synced up and how creepy the music they selected for it. It does in these scenes, you know, really does a great job at building tension. So this is a classic film. It's one of my favorite from this era. And I mean, definitely one of my favorites from the 1920s as well. It's just so crazy what they could do, you know, with a silent film this old and just how they can present this story that just sucks me in. And this has got to be one of the, you know, earlier kind of movies with an actual, you know, screenplay that is telling a story and everything like that. So this is, like I said, one of my favorites. There's some slight issues that I have with the movie, but I still come in with a 9.5 out of 10 on this one. And that's all I have for mini reviews for this week. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to a musical break before I get into my featured section of this podcast. I think I'm drowning. 
Now I want to welcome you back and I'm going to kind of get into this featured portion of the show where I'm going to go through the all the 85 horror movies that I watched for 2020 and I'm going to start, you know, in doing a sending order here. I believe that's how it would go where I'm going to start with my worst film that I saw and then, you know, count it all the way down to my top one and the 85th movie on my list for the year of 2020 is The Doctor's Monster. This is one that I watched pretty early back into the year, and this is one that I said is just a bad film, and I feel bad for saying that. We're taking a story that's been done over and over again because this is a play on the Frankenstein mythology and like lore and everything like that, but they don't really try to do anything new, and it really just didn't seem like they cared. I will give credit that they did make a movie, and it ends up like really just being that. The acting is mediocre at best. Everything else just has its flaws, so it's hard to really say that there was one part that really stood out to me, unfortunately. I would rate this as a bad movie. Not the worst that I've ever seen, but there are little parts you know, that do work for me. But regardless, I can't recommend this movie, and I don't think even with drinks or friends that it would help this one. And my rating here was a 2 out of 10. And then at number 84, I have Sweet Taste of Souls. This is one that I feel bad for not liking more, as I did get to see this as a screener. There were just some concepts and ideas that were introduced, but for whatever reason, the direction the movie goes is away from them. I like the idea of this entity and what it's feeding on that we have in this movie. It would have been better served, though, to stick with having the actual talents of the main you know, villain here and you know, kind of go along with the title of the movie and not to go the route that they did. The acting is pretty mediocre, but I will say Honey Lauren, and I mean, it's not just because I did interview her here on the podcast, but I just feel like she does an excellent job, but everybody else around her kind of was a little bit weak for me. The effects went mostly CGI where they just don't hold up. The soundtrack, from what I remember, was fine, but it also didn't necessarily stand out. This is another one that I thought was well below average for me, and I just can't recommend giving it a viewing for the most part, and I do feel bad again for saying that. But there are just some good things here, but just not enough to save it. And my rating on Sweet Taste of Souls is a 3.5 out of 10. And then at number 83 is Camp Twilight, which was another screener that I also got to watch, you know, fairly early on. But this is one that, again, I wanted to like, but it just falls flat for me. The paying homage to classics of the genre I think is good, as this is a slasher film. I respect that they made this movie, but I feel like not enough care went in to shore up some of the issues that I did have. The story and the reveal itself are fine, but it is a bit of a slog to get there. I don't care enough about the characters to stay invested, and I get that this is in part of what they're trying to go for. Most of the effects worked. There are just some slight issues in that department. The soundtrack doesn't necessarily stand out or hurt the movie. I'm glad that I watched it, but not really one that I can recommend unless you just love the you know slasher subgenre. There were just too many flaws for me to go higher, and I felt that this one, again, was a below average movie for me. I mean, I did like seeing, you know, like Linnea Quigley and Felissa Rose and stuff like that. You know, seeing the Camp Dave Sheridan, these cameos are all nice and everything like that. But my rating here on Camp Twilight was a 4 out of 10. And one of the movies that I watched pretty early on in the year was The Marshes. And this is coming in at number 82 for the year. This is one that it did hook me with some of the things, but then really just let me down. I don't like to bash a movie if I don't have to. This unfortunately tried to do too much without really doing anything like enough of it to kind of really kind of get me going and kind of get me to stick with it i just found it to be boring and where it went it didn't go far enough and i did think that the acting was a bright spot though and even though we don't really get a lot of effects it is framed in a way where i'm not bothered there the soundtrack didn't really stand out but it also doesn't hurt the movie 
I did like the whistling song that we get as an interesting theme for the killer, and it's just kind of creepy. And I thought the killer itself was kind of a cool thing that they were playing with. I personally found this to be just below average for me. Some good things, but just didn't do enough and kind of lost its way because of it. So for the marshes, I came in with a 4.5 out of 10. So we still are below average, in my opinion, with the ratings. And then very similar to the previous movie, coming in at number 81 is Covenant. This is one that I blindly saw, I believe on Amazon Prime, very or about getting close to the midway point of the year. And this is one that, again, bit of a letdown, as it had me hooked in with its initial concept. The problem, though, is that there are just some inconsistencies with some of the rules for the creatures that they're trying to establish. Due to this, I lost my interest, and it is a shame with how this ends, though. The soundtrack to the movie fit for what was needed, nothing special there. The acting really didn't help much, and the script really just isn't there to also kind of help out, unfortunately. I'd have to say that this one, again, just below average for me. A few tweaks here and there, and I think that would have put it over the average line. With how it is, though, it just wasn't there, and I came in with a 4.5 out of 10 on this movie. And then at number 80 is one that I got to see in the theater with Jamie pretty early into the year, and that is The Turning. This is a film that had so much potential for me just because the source material and then by updating it to the 90s and it really just kind of falls flat there. And I actually have watched or I actually have read the novel of I guess it's more of a novella of The Turning of the Screw here recently this year. But this is just one that kind of falls flat with what they're doing there. I do get the feel that this could have had issues with too many cooks in the kitchen, seeing the problems with trying to get this out of development hell. I think that in the end it builds to some interesting things, but just loses its way in the end. I didn't find it boring, so there was that, it just didn't seem to have an ending. The acting I would say overall is a positive, but I wasn't the biggest fan of the star of, I believe it's Mackenzie Davis. The effects though didn't really go where I thought they would, which is good. It was shot well. The soundtrack I thought was fitting for what was needed and I just didn't have any issues there. My rating here is again just below average due to these problems that I kind of had with what they were doing here and like I said, one that I wanted to come in liking, I just it just wasn't there for me. So again, this is going to be another 4.5 out of 10 on the turning. And then coming in at number 79 for me is Dreamcatcher and that is Catcher with a K. This is one that I rented on VOD with Jamie as I thought things kind of looked pretty interesting about it. And I mean, the Dreamcatcher is something that I think is, when done properly, can be kind of a cool thing to play with with horror movies. But this one, like I said, does have an interesting concept. There is just one section of dialogue addressing cancel culture, which I did appreciate. The rest of the movie, though, is very vanilla. It doesn't go far enough to really hook me. And the movie is just kind of boring overall, if I'm going to be honest. I think the acting was very up and down. The effects are well done for the most part. And I mean, going back to the acting, we have Rada Mitchell, who I'm a big fan of her, but we also have like Lynn Shay, who just kind of, she doesn't really, I feel like she's doing a lot for paychecks, which, you know, good for her, but it's just kind of not great. The effects are well done for the most part, but it relies too much on dream sequences, which I guess for a movie called Dreamcatcher, you kind of have to. The soundtrack really didn't stand out, but it also doesn't hurt the movie either, if I'm going to be honest. Overall, I'd say this is just an average movie, and I can't really recommend it, if I'm going to be honest. And I will say is that one of my good friends of Shane, he actually wrote a screenplay about a dream catcher that would make a infinitely better movie than this. And I think it would be kind of a fun kind of slasher elements that he has in his. But this is a first movie that is going to, you know, be breaking into the below average category as I come in with a 5 out of 10 here on Dreamcatcher. And then I have at number 78 is The Bone Box. This is one that I just randomly saw popped up on Shutter, so I decided to give it a viewing. 
This is a movie that does some good things, and there are some issues with others. There's an interesting setup here, but the movie just loses its way and focuses on things that I didn't really care about. Not to beat a dead horse, but this is, you know, shot extremely well. But the effects and the look of the characters are good. The acting is above average for the most part, and the soundtrack just worked for what was needed. This is another one that was just average, in my opinion. It was kind of boring. The good and the bad don't really outweigh each other, so I'm kind of indifferent to this movie, to be honest, which sometimes can be worse. And that is why, for this one, I came in with a 5 out of 10 on the bone box. But it was great to see people like Jamie Bernadette was in this movie, as I am a fan of her, you know, as this low-budget actress who is doing some really good things out there for sure. And one that I'm going to kind of gloss over here very briefly, because I did do a mini-review earlier on this episode for this one, and that is of The Siren. This movie's coming in at a number 77 on my list and of course just to kind of reiterate my rating on that movie was a 5 out of 10. And then coming in at number 76 for me is Remy's Demons. This is one that I end up checking out when the co-writer and director of Colin Bresler reached out to me on Instagram to check out his movie and I watched it on Amazon Prime. This is one that had some interesting concepts. I like the idea of taking the supernatural with someone who is autistic that we get in this movie. It is something I don't recall seeing outside of something like Hellbound, Hellraiser 2, where they have the person who is mentally handicapped who's able to, you know, solve the puzzle there. The acting is fine for the most part. I really like the soundtrack and how the movie was shot was well done in my opinion. If I have any issues, it would be that the movie's just too long and focuses on things I don't really need. Where I've actually said in my review when I, you know, did more in-depth into this one is that I think this would work better almost as like a series where you have a little bit more time to flesh things out because I don't think we have enough time but we kind of go too long. I feel that this is just slightly over average for me as it just didn't come together as much as I would have liked it to. So this is the first one that is going to actually break the average mark and is coming in at a 5.5 out of 10, and this is for Remy's Demons. And then breaking into the top 75 for mine is the first one that I saw from Nightmares Film Festival this year, and that movie is Nightboat. This is one that is from Japan and was one of their midnight features, so I don't know if I have a whole lot about it that I can kind of share. What I will say is that this is an interesting movie, if I have any major issues with it, it's just that I wanted more. They don't necessarily flesh things out all that well, so it does feel like a bit of an issue for me. I really do like the art house aspects of the movie. I thought that the acting was good for what was needed. There aren't a lot in the way of effects, but it also doesn't necessarily need them. I love the reoccurring song they use in the movie, as it's quite haunting to be honest. I can't recommend this movie to everyone, but if you're into more of these types of films, I would definitely give this a go. As I would rate this just over average, it's just lacking too much for me to for it really to click home there but this is one that is you know even going a little bit higher for my ratings as i'm coming in with a six out of ten on nightboat and then another one from nightmares film festival coming in at number 74 for me is poppy ramirez versus giant scorpions this is an interesting one because this film is pretty much all done by the same guy who is the writer director and star and his name is leslie rivera he did this all with green screen which is pretty impressive and it's a lot of fun and even more impressive that, you know, to see what went into the making of this. We really get in a movie paying homage to those giant monster movies of the era's past. And this is a whimsical in nature to go with it. As I said, all done with green screen, which normally I'm not the biggest fan of. It is part of the premise of this movie, though, so I do have to give credit for it. The acting is over the top, which matches the style. If you like lower budget efforts, you really do need to see this one. Overall, I'd say this one is just over average for me. And a lot of just care went into making it. This is really a passion project, so I do have to respect that. And like I said, I'm not going to come down hard because of those reasons. And then this one, 
for the Nightmares Film Festival is another one that was part of the Midnight Features for this year. And for my rating on this movie, I came in with a 6 out of 10 on Poppy Ramirez versus the Giant Scorpions. And then I have up next at number 73 is Shortcut. This is one that I got to go see at the Gateway Film Center during their little short stint when they were opened back up during this pandemic before they end up unfortunately having to shut down once again. Can't wait for them to open back up though. But this is one that I thought was a little bit disappointing to me for some of the things that had going for it. We have a good setting. Part of the tension comes from being isolated out in the middle of nowhere. You couple this with a great looking creature and already have a recipe for a good horror movie. There's even a soundtrack that really fit and hooked me in. The problem is that I think the screenplay was fleshed out not enough for what they needed. There are aspects that are introduced and then never go anywhere. Either needed to be more discovery of the creature or more action to really give us a movie that wouldn't be boring. I also think the acting is hurt by this as well. The performances themselves aren't bad, I just don't feel like there's enough there for where it's going. This is why I'm rating this as just over average. Technically, this movie is really good, but there's just a lot of missteps that force me to like to force the score down for me. I'm coming in with a six out of ten on this movie. To be honest, this one probably should have been moved down to probably like a five point five from what I remember on it. But I'm gonna leave it where it is currently, as it's so far down the list that I'm not really overly too concerned with it. But I just kind of wanted to preface that as well. And then we have. At number 72 is another one from Nightmares Film Festival. This is one of the comedy features, like the comedy horror features that is. This is It Cuts Deep. I liked a lot about this movie. It just doesn't necessarily all work for me. I like the aspects of the relationship. I like the acting, and I thought that these people all worked well in their roles. The effects, cinematography, and sound design all did as well. The movie just gets a bit boring, though. I don't necessarily buy where things go, and then the explanation of the beginning didn't really work for me. The awkwardness still gets to be a bit much, but I can appreciate that still because I do like that feeling. Overall though, I think this is an above average movie despite you know some of my issues that I had with it. So I had to come in with a 6 out of 10 on It Cuts Deep. And then coming in at number 71, one that I got to see in the theaters very early on into this year before everything kind of closed down was Fantasy Island. This is one that had a pretty interesting cast as this came, you know, from Blumhouse as we have people like Michael Pena, Maggie Q, Lucy Hale, just stuff like that. And I believe this is also, this is directed by Jeff Wadlow and I tried to come into this movie, you know, not to hate it before I actually saw it. This does some really good things for me. I like the underlying mystery that this movie has and I think the reveal of the truth is kind of good and incorporating a bit of the supernatural elements as well. The acting is solid across the board, and I don't really think any of my issues are with the effects. There, It does run a bit long, which caused me to lose interest, and then the movie just kind of has some elements that just don't actually work for me as well. The soundtrack really didn't stand out, but it also doesn't hurt in my opinion. If you like these Blumhouse-type films that are kind of more directed towards like PG-13, I would give this a viewing, as I think if you like those movies, you'll enjoy this one. It's not as bad, and I would say that my rating here is just slightly over average for it, as I came in with a 6 out of 10 on this movie. And that is for Fantasy Island from Blumhouse. And then coming in at number 70 for me is one that I got a email from the writer and director of this movie of Philip G. Carroll Jr. about checking out his movie, and I decided I would give it a go. And this is The Honeymoon Phase. I've actually heard some podcasts, you know, talking. I know I've heard an interview with the director as well as his wife who stars in this movie as well on top of that I should also point that out 
I think there's some really good aspects here. The characters did some real things that, you know, are real worries and wants, you know, of a situation that really kind of just makes things worse. I feel the isolated feel that we get here as they are trapped. The acting is on the positive side for the most part. If I did have any issues, that does lose me as things get revealed to a point where the ending didn't have too much of an impact on me, unfortunately. There's also some CGI that doesn't really hold up. I am still positive on this movie and find it to be over average. It is still quite interesting and I would recommend giving this one a viewing if you like into these type of movies. As I do have to point out that this is a like sci-fi horror movie. As like I said, it does some really good things. It's just I have some issues with me personally that I just had issues connecting with the movie. So for the honeymoon phase, I came in with a 6 out of 10. And then at number 69 for me, nice, is Hubie Halloween. Is this a great movie? No. It doesn't even rank near the top of the Adam Sandler movies for me. What I will say though is that this is a pretty solid family film with horror elements that really embodies the feel of Halloween, so I'll give a lot of credit there. And I think this would be, you know, it has a good message, and I think this would be one that would be good to introduce younger fans if you want to get them into the horror genre, as we get some of those elements that really does work. There's some fun cameos. I think that if this would have gone a bit further with some of the things that we got, I think it would have worked better. I'm not really the target audience at this time though. For me, I would say that this is an over-average movie. It is fun with a good message, just lacking some things for really to make it stand out for me. But like I said, one that you could definitely introduce younger fans to to help get them into the genre. So for Hubie Halloween, I came in with a 6 out of 10. And then going to number 68 is another one from Nightmares Film Festival of The Brain That Wouldn't Die. This was one of their comedy horror features that were being shown there for this year. And... I love that they took a low-budget movie from the 1950s and did a shot-for-shot -shot remake, just adding the comedic elements. What really sets us apart, though, is that they made it a satire for, on the time period that also seems to poke fun at things we see today as well. The acting fits for what was needed for the movie. The sets did feel like the time period, while also being somewhat timeless. What is really a movie you aren't supposed to take too seriously, but I don't think that it's a detriment to the movie is, you know, doing overall. Despite that this movie not being what I would normally turn to, I still think this is an above average one and had a lot of fun checking this one out. So for The Brain That Wouldn't Die, the remake here from 2020, I came in with a 6 out of 10 on this movie. And then coming in at number 67, I have The New Mutants. This is one that, you know, I had a lot of wanting to kind of see this movie as I'm an X-Men fan. And this one had been in development hell as they kept talking about how it was supposed to be, you know, coming out. They pulled it. They did some reshoots. They were supposed to release it. Didn't, you know, kind of pulled it back. One of the last few films that I got to see in the movie theater before everything kind of shut back down around me a little bit. And I mean, this one has a great cast. I'm a big fan of Anya Taylor-Joy. I think Maisie Williams does a good job here. Charlie Heaton was solid. You know, kind of all the people around them really kind of work out for me. It's a shame that this movie, you know, wasn't made though how the director of Boone wanted it, and I feel like it does fall short. There are some really good ideas here that don't get fleshed out enough, so the movie feels like a superhero movie that doesn't know how it wants to be or if it wants to be a horror movie. The acting, as I said, really good across the board, as were the effects. It does end up being boring for whatever reason, and I did like, you know, still liked a lot of it, but it's just one of those things that I have to be honest there about it. I just wanted more, and I feel like if we would have got it, that there was supposed to be two other planned films that might have went darker, but it seems like they wanted certain things but weren't allowing them to do certain things, but I still think this is an over-average movie for me and came in with a 6 out of 10 on The New Mutants. And then coming in at number 66, I have The Dark Red. 
This is another one that I saw pretty early on in the year at the Gateway Film Center before everything kind of shut down. And this is a movie that I thought it did some good things and had some interesting concepts, but it just didn't necessarily work out as well as I would have liked. I think that the interviews portion of the movie allowed us to kind of see things happening and just didn't play out in a way that, you know, always kept my interest, though. The acting was good across the board, though. I thought the effects were pretty well done and the soundtrack fit for what was needed. I just think that there's some ideas that are lost and the events leading up to the climax just didn't work for me. I would say that this is just slightly over average though and I came in with a 6 out of 10 on this movie. And then coming in at number 65 I have an episode of Into the Dark of My Valentine. This is one that I dug the social commentary that this movie is conveying. I thought that the acting was solid for the most part and bring, you know, this stuff to light as this is loosely based on like a real event. I thought both Valentine and Treasure are interesting as well as attractive characters. And I would say that the rest of the acting was fine for the most part. If I didn't have any issues, it's just a little bit boring as I don't really care where it's going for the most part. Outside of some cheesy gimmick effects, the blood and whatnot was good. I did find the soundtrack for the most part to be done well. I would rate this as an above average movie. I don't think I'll ever go much higher for it. And I did like some of the music that they're playing from these two like pop star type things as well. So my rating here is once again is a six out of 10. And this is for Into the Dark, My Valentine. And coming in at number 64, I have the 2020 remake of The Grudge. Now this is one that I heard a lot of people being down on it and I still wanted to see it, you know, to judge for myself. I think there are some good aspects of the story. I don't mind bringing what they do to the United States and making it a kind of like sequel remake that we're seeing a lot of nowadays. Some of the changes of the story also worked for me, but there are just some things that don't necessarily. I think it would have been better using the idea and just starting fresh as opposed to what they did. The acting I thought was strong. The editing and the non-linear story can be a bit confusing, but for the most part, I think it works. The effects weren't great, but there were some things that did creep me out. It just doesn't do enough of that. I also thought that the sound design was quite effective as well. Overall, I would say this is just over average for me, but again, another with you know some untapped potential that just falls short. And I like I said, I think some people are coming down a little bit too hard on this one and I also kind of feel like people have heard other people you know kind of shitting on this movie so they're kind of just jumping on there as well like I said I don't think it's great by any stretch and it definitely pales in comparison to some of the other ones in the series so I came in with a 6 out of 10 on this movie and that is for the grudge 2020 and then at number 63 I have lake of death this is another one that I caught on shutter and you know when I was trying to kind of get as many 2020 watches in that I could this is one that I thought had some interesting aspects as well that we are getting, but they're just also things that we've seen before. I thought the setting was good with the backdrop of the stories behind our lead and her missing brother. There's a bit of folklore that gets mixed in here that I'm always a fan of. I thought the performances were good. The effects and how it was shot are fine, and the soundtrack fit for what was needed. The movie is just lacking a bit of originality that really kind of stuck with me, unfortunately. It just has some concepts playing out here that we've seen done better elsewhere. Overall, I still enjoyed it. I would rate this as just over average, but I can't recommend it to everyone. And I would say that for Lake of Death, I came in with, once again, a 6 out of 10. And at number 62, I have Brahms the Boy 2. I tried to come in with this one without any expectations, and I haven't only seen the original one once at that time. I was, you know, a pretty Blake Slate. 
do I think this is a great film? No, but I think it does some good things. I like the depth of characters and the performances from the actors to bringing them to life. There's some interesting backstory elements here that are introduced with, I would say, probably minimal violation of continuity from what I remember. The effects worked out for what was needed, and I'd say that this soundtrack fit as well. The only reason I really had any here is I found this to be a bit boring for whatever reason. I think that what they focused on, it just doesn't necessarily work. I would say this is just slightly over average, not great, but a sequel that works and could be watched as a standalone, which I also find to be impressive. And this is another one that I saw very early on into the year when it was in the theaters. So for my rating of Brahms The Boy 2, I came in with a 6 out of 10. For my 61st film is going to be Real 2. This is one that I got a chance to see when the writer and director had reached out to me via social media asking to check this movie out. And since I like to, you know, watch independent 2020 releases or just independent new movies, I decided to give it a go. This is one that, much like the original, this one does some really good things and some that just don't necessarily work for me. I really like the concept that we have Slasher Victim 666 thinks that he's a great director and that he's not getting the accolades that he deserves. The meta aspect of the film industry and the horror genre is a big plus for me. I think the acting is believable for the most part, and the effects are practical, which is great. It is a perk that they ramp them up as well, as you always kind of want to have, you know, a higher body count and more of that in a sequel. There are just a few missteps here and there, and I think that this is a bit too much of filler in it, to be honest. The soundtrack was mostly ambient, and the selections aside from that don't work as well as previously. It doesn't take me out of it either. And I would say this is a found footage film if I haven't kind of released that kind of information. It is a step down though from the original, but still over average. And I would recommend both of these if you're into more of the gory found footage films. And my rating here for Real 2 is 6 out of 10. Now the last film here in the 60s I have is Climate of the Hunter. This is a one that I saw at Nightmares Film Festival for this year, and I believe Jamie started to watch this for, with me, and I believe she also kind of dozed off during it. Nothing against the movie or anything like that, but this tends to happen sometimes with her. But this is one that I thought had a lot going for it with its basic premise and concept that they're playing with. It is done subtly, which I can always appreciate. We are getting some things that the audience that we know as opposed to what the characters themselves know. The acting is good, as were the visuals. If I do have to say anything, they leaned into the slow burn too much, and it is a bit boring. Aside from that, I really enjoyed the product that we were given here, and I'd rate this as an above-average movie all overall. I cannot recommend this to everyone, but I think there are some elements for you if you like more of the art house type films, and I would recommend you know viewing it if you're into those. And this is the first one that is you know bumped up half a point as we're sitting on a 6.5 out of 10 for Climate of the Hunter. And then for number 59 is another one that I got to see in the theaters very early on into the year, and that is Underwater. This is one that I thought the movie did some really good things, and some just fell a bit flat for me. There were some believable parts of the story, and it is a setting that makes me feel uncomfortable. And it's also something I believe could be true about the bottom of the ocean, as that, you know, just terrifies me down there. The movie is a bit boring until we get to the climax, and I think part of that is a lack of fleshing out these characters, especially with the ability of the actors that we have here. Because, I mean, Kristen Stewart's actually a good actress, and, I mean, we have Vincent Cassell and T.J. Miller, just to name some of them. Now, they went heavy with CGI, but I really didn't have any issues with it, to be honest. The murkiness of the water does help there. The soundtrack doesn't stand out, aside from, you know, the use of alarms and everything like that. They did make some scenes quite tense though if I'm honest and overall I'd say this is slightly above average and I enjoyed what the movie was doing but probably one I won't revisit unless I have to 
But I will say is that it is one that does seem to be kind of interesting that I do want to end up seeing. And so I currently had it down as a 6, but I believe I had bumped it up while I was sitting on it and thinking about it to a 6.5. And that is why it is coming in at number 59 for Underwater. And then going back to something I saw at Nightmares Film Festival, I have What Happens Next Will Scare You. This is one of the comedy horror features that they had there. And it was one that I thought was interesting. I think that the basic concept is one that fits in for what we see today. And I like that, you know, what they do with this to make it go horror. The selection of videos really does help as this one shows a lot of YouTube videos. They're trying to create like a clickbait uh, article. And I think that we actually get to know the characters from the videos that they select even better and the acting fit for their performances. I'd say that the effects on the whole were good along with the sound design. If I did have any issues though, I just don't know if everything came together as well as it could. It also feels a little bit uneven with some of the CGI that doesn't necessarily work. Aside from that, I thought this was an above average movie overall and came in with a 6.5 out of 10 for what happens next will scare you. And the 57th film on my list is Into the Dark Crawlers, another one that was, you know, Into the Dark for Hulu. This is one that I thought was a solid installment. There was some really interesting social elements that they worked into the story very well with the backdrop of an alien invasion. I think that it even furthers the feminist plight in a way that is constructive and not ham-fisted as well. There's just a bit of cheesiness, but I kind of expect that for these type of movies here. The acting is solid to go along with it, and it is paced in a way that keeps things moving. The effects were also pretty good, but I did have some slight issue with some CGI blood splatter. I also thought that the stopping of the movie to explain things does bog it down slightly, and I have some minor issues with the aliens themselves. None of this ruins it for me, and I would say that this movie that was above average, it is fun, and I would you know consider watching this again with friends, as it's that type of movie where I think if you have some drinks and some people over, it could be a good time. So I came in with a 6.5 out of 10 for Into the Dark Crawlers. I probably should also add here, this would be the St. Patrick's Day episode as well. And then for 56 is another one of the Into the Dark episodes for Hulu of Puka Lives. This one I actually just recently reviewed as it was on my Christmas episode. And it's one that I would say that as a sequel, it does work as they took the story to a place where it should, as the original one doesn't necessarily need to be expanded anymore. I like the taking it to supernatural elements and incorporating social commentary on cancel culture, along with things going viral on the internet. I thought that the acting was solid for what was needed. The effects were about the same as well in the soundtrack fit. If there's anything that I would have liked to have seen would have been more deaths and attacks, but I also get why we don't. Overall, I'd say this is an above average overall. The movie for me is a bit of a step down from the original, but not by much. And for Into the Dark Puka Lives, I came in with a 6.5 out of 10. And I believe this would be the April episode, and or because it was around Easter is what they were supposed to be going for, even though there's not really that many type of elements for that holiday in this one. In the 55th position, I have 12 Hour Shift. This is one that Jamie and I rented on VOD, as I was going to see this in the theater, but it had left before I could get to the gateway to check it out. And this is one that I thought was an interesting horror comedy. I really like the premise of the movie of organ trafficking, and it makes me wonder if this is really kind of going on, especially in more of these like backwater type hospitals. The performances of our two leads of Angela Bettis and Chloe Farnworth are both different but complement each other so well. The rest of the cast work for what was needed, and I really can't think of a bad performance. Effects are good, and the soundtrack and the score fit for what was needed. If I have any issues here, I think the overuse of the montage sequences and some of the comedy in the movie isn't necessarily based in reality as I would expect. 
Overall, though, I thought it was solid. I'd rate this as an above-average movie, and it isn't great by any stretch, but it's definitely one I would recommend giving a viewing if you like more outrageous, snarky comedies with horror elements. And this is, like I said, 12-hour shift, and I came in with a 6.5 out of 10 on this movie. And then coming in at number 54 is another one that I got to see in the theater, and I actually went to see this with Jamie, and that is Gretel and Hansel. This is the film by Oz Perkins, of course. And I thought there were some aspects of this that I really liked. The backstory that we have here and the different take on the fairy tale was something that also works. The social commentary that this movie is trying to get across is something else that I can get behind along with the amazing visuals and the soundtrack that fit along with it. There's something that was just missing from the story that I'm not entirely sure what it is though. I thought the acting was good across the board. And I do think this is going to be a polarizing film much like his other movies are as this one's pretty much art house and if i'm going to be honest about that my rating here would be above average and this is one that i'm kind of kicking myself that i haven't given a rewatch to because i do think it would probably go up i'm currently sitting on a 6.5 out of 10 on this movie though and that is gretel and hansel and in the 53rd position here we have evil takes root and this is one that i saw at the nightmares film festival as this was the ohio features i believe it was filmed here in columbus ohio where i am recording out of and this is one that I wasn't necessarily sure what I was getting into when I came in, but I did like the story here. It is interesting that it's set in, you know, my home state. Well, not my birth state, but where I currently live. And I like the demon that I've never heard of before being, you know, transplanted here in a kind of interesting way. I think the acting works for what was needed to bring these characters to life. There are some good concepts and the ideas being played with are on top of that are with who we are following works. Not all the effects work for me, though. But overall, they were fine. The soundtrack doesn't necessarily stand out, but what I did enjoy was the voice they used for this entity. With that, you know, out of the way, I'd say that this was an above-average movie for me. And this is the first movie that is going to come in with the rating of 7 out of 10, and that is Evil Takes Root. And then I have for one that here I picked up and checked out as it was streaming on Hulu during, you know, December here when I was trying to go for 2020 watches of Amulet. This is one that I thought had some really good concepts and I enjoy what they're doing with the playing with religion and the potential of older entities that are more powerful. The acting really does help to flesh out the characters to where they start, build, and end up and some things I wasn't necessarily expecting. I think the effects work well along with the cinematography and the creepy use of the soundtrack and sound design. If I do have any issues, it's a longer running time that I think could have been used to kind of explain some of the things and get me on board but they just kind of fall short there so i'm not completely there and i still think this is an above average movie that does have some interesting ideas to explore and for amulet i came in with a 7 out of 10. And in position number 51 is going to be another one that i saw from the nightmares film festival i think this is one of the thriller features of goodbye honey this is one that i could see that some people might not find to be horror it really is a thriller, but I think there's some darker reveals that we get that make it close enough for me to include. And these elements is where we have like Cass, who's our one of our main characters, is willing to, like the length we'll go to to get his revenge. And I think that the acting from the two other leads really does help to carry this movie. Seeing them grow into who they end up to be by the end works for me. There are some tropes here that we see quite a bit, but I think there's a little bit different take on how they're used that I kind of enjoyed. The cinematography was good. There are some shots that definitely stood out to me. Aside from that, with what little we get for the effects, those were good, and the soundtrack fit for what was needed. I would rate this as an above-average movie and would recommend giving this a viewing for sure, and I thought for Goodbye Honey that it was a 7 out of 10 for me. 
And then the last movie that I'm going to have for this section here, coming in at number 50, you know, starting that top 50 off for me, is another one that I got to see at the Nightmares Film Festival. That was one of the horror features of Victim of Love. This is one that I end up really liking some of the aspects. I thought the basic premise was good. The performances from Konyak and Anderson were solid along with those around them. I really enjoyed the cinematography, the effects, and how the soundtrack of the movie fit. I do feel like this does get a bit slow in the middle and I kind of wanted a bit more. Now, I know that where this ends up, I do want to revisit this now. I'd rate this movie as above average. Be advised, part of this movie is in Danish, so I had to watch it with subtitles on. So if that's an issue, I would avoid this movie. But my rating here for Victim of Love would be a 7 out of 10. What I'm going to do, though, is get you over to a brief musical break before I start this next session, which I believe is going to be number 49 through number 21. And that'll be this second section that I have on this, you know, featured aspect of this podcast. I'm not your friend or anything, damn You think that you're the man I think therefore I am I'm not your friend or anything, damn You think that you're the man I think therefore I am Stop. What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> Get my pretty name out of your mouth We are not the same with or without
And before I get into the next one, I just want to welcome you back from that musical break. And then coming in at number 49, I have We Summon the Darkness. This is another one that I caught on BOD with Jamie as we were trying to, well, I was trying to keep up with 2020 watches after the theaters closed. And this is one that I thought had an interesting setup, and I like some of the reveals. It has a subject matter that really works for me, and they're playing with religion, the corruption of it, and those that follow. This is a good runtime that kept me from getting bored, which was good. This is listed as a comedy, but we don't get a whole lot of that. There's a little bit of dark comedy that I would say comes with it. There are some subtle things, though, that I did enjoy. I do think there are some missteps with word choice that isn't in line with the reveal of the characters, in my opinion. The effects, for the most part, were good. The soundtrack doesn't really stand out, but it also did fit for what was needed. And I'd say this is an above-average movie that I came in with a 7 out of 10 on We Summon the Darkness. And then following that up, at number 48, is Muse or The Legend of the Muse. This is one that originally came out, I believe, in 2017, but it had wider release in 2020. And this is another one that I got to see as a screener. And I wasn't necessarily sure what to expect coming in, and I ended up really kind of enjoying it. I thought there's a solid little premise that is grounded in mythology, and what they do with it works. There's not a lot to the story, and I think that a lot of it kind of works with the acting. I think that Egan, Evans, and Fawn are all good. The rest of the people are solid in support. There's not a lot in the way of effects, but it doesn't really need them, and I thought the soundtrack fit for what was needed. It's just lacking some aspects to be really good in my opinion, but I'd say this is an above average film that I would recommend giving a viewing, especially if anything that I said here really works. So for Muse or The Legend of the Muse, I gave it a 7 out of 10. And for number 47 is going to be The Soul Collector or the other title of 8. I'm not going to really delve into that since I did you know, cover earlier on this episode, but just to reiterate, this is coming in at position number 47. This is also a 7 out of 10 for me. And then at number 46, I have Monstrum, another one that I checked out on Shudder for this year. And it's one that has an, it's an interesting movie that is playing with some ideas that are still relevant even today. Seeing that this is during a pandemic is interesting and having issues with the government, you know, kind of covering up and doing some shady things as well. I do like that there could or couldn't be a monster here, but that what we end up getting there doesn't always look great. I thought the fight scenes were solid on the whole. And there was just some issues I had with some CGI. The acting was good and the soundtrack fit for what was needed. It does run a bit long and I lost interest for some stretches if I'm going to be honest. I would say this is an above average movie still. Be warned that this is from South Korea so I had to watch it with subtitles on. So that's an issue I would avoid this. But I still think this is worth your time and I think there might even be a dubbed version out there as well. So my rating on Monstrum was a 7 out of 10. And coming in at my position of number 45 is Homewrecker. Now, I'm not going to really delve into this one either, unfortunately, because it is going to be one that I saw a screener for it as part of, on the Dark Discussions Network, the new kind of podcast they're doing there for these, like, screener things is from the art house to the grindhouse. So my episode hasn't actually dropped yet, so I'm just going to hold off and just say that it came in at this position here, and I gave it a 7 out of 10 as well. And then for number 44, I saw The Beach House, another one that Jamie and I watched on VOD while I was trying to keep up with my 2020 watches. And this one, thought did some interesting things as well. I like the idea of this movie sets up with this isolation at this you know beach house off season. It helps to build that contained feel. We have a small cast that really do well in my opinion. The subject matter might be a bit heavy for some people, especially during the times that we're living in right now as a pandemic. But I think there's some interesting social commentary that comes with it. The effects, lighting, and cinematography were all good. If I do have any issues here, I just thought there were some things that 
I've seen it done better, even by movies that were released here in the same year. I thought it was a bit heavy-handed, but a not a bad movie by any stretch. This falls short of being good for me, though. And I do like some of the Lovecraftian aspects that this movie also is incorporating in. But for The Beach House, I came in with a 7 out of 10. And for my number 43rd film is going to be Porno. Another one that I end up checking out with Jamie as I saw that it was streaming and, you know, trying to keep up with these watches. And this is one that I thought was a pretty solid movie on the whole. I like the cast of characters that we get and then putting them against this entity that is playing with their beliefs. I even think we get some really good blend of comedy that worked for me and we get some things that doesn't always happen when you cross over the genres. I was concerned that none of the characters were safe, which is something that does work for me, especially with a comedy. There has been some inconsistencies with the rules for this monster that I had with it, and some of the effects could have been better, but I will say that the music accompanying this movie was that they were watching was pretty unnerving. Overall, I'd say this movie was above average for me, probably coming up just short of as of being a contender for the year end, as you can tell. And I came in for the movie of Porno, a 7 out of 10. And then for number 42 is Zombie Child. This is one that I got to see at the Gateway Film Center before everything kind of shut down. And... This is one that I ended up enjoying. I like the duality of what we're getting here in the past in Haiti and then the social implications there while also pairing this with the girls that are in a proper Parisian school. The movie ends up, you know, getting me hooked and I'll be honest, it did lose me though for a good stretch as I was bored and it took too long to kind of correlate some of the things back. The little effects that we get were good. The cinematography helped as well as the soundtrack. I thought the acting was really good. And with that said, this one's an above average movie in my opinion, but you know, it is worth a viewing for sure. I will warn you this is from France, so I had to watch it with subtitles on. So if that's an issue, I would avoid this. And this is the first movie that is going to break out of that seven range. Well, of being a seven and jumps up to a 7.5 here out of 10. And this is for Zombie Child. Then number 41, I have MOM or Mothers of Monsters. This is one that I saw on streaming when some people were kind of giving it some buzz early in the year. And this is one that it isn't the best in the subgenre that I've seen, but I like the idea that they're exploring. The acting really helps, and I think the diversity of footage is also solid as we get some different types of cameras that are filming things because this is somewhat found footage. And it also helps to build more of that realism. There's not a lot in the way of effects, but it doesn't need them. I'm glad that they didn't put a soundtrack onto this as it's diegetic and it feels like, you know, it is coming from the cameras. I think mine might have been off sync at times with Jacob, but I don't really know if that was just a different camera microphone picking up the sound. So I'm not really going to hold that against it too much. I think that we need to talk about Kevin is more powerful, but this is a dark turn that really made me uncomfortable. During these times, I would actually recommend this to horror and non-horror fans alike. After this initial viewing that I had for it, I came in at above average. I would watch this again just to see how things play out, like knowing that, and then see where I'm kind of landing after that. But this one's another one that I thought was, you know, pretty good and gave it a 7.5 out of 10. And that's for MOM, Mothers of Monsters. And then at number 40, I have After Midnight. This is one that Jamie and I saw at the Gateway Film Center, actually, because this came out on Valentine's Day. And this is one of the things that we did, you know, together as, you know, before everything kind of shut down there. But this is one that I really liked the movie after I left the theater. But the more I sat on it, the lower my rating actually came for it. And I feel bad to say. It's not to say it's bad, as that's not the case. I think they really introduced some deep and complex characters that are grounded in reality. Heck, I know the characters that are similar to people in my friends group. I like that the movie is presented as a way where it could be real or an allegory for the, you know, creature in it. My issue then becomes that I don't really like how they explain things. 
One of my favorite scenes. I'm not entirely sure if it'll hold up after a second viewing. The soundtrack fit, and I like what they did with it. I thought that I could see, you know, the monster was good, and then the cinematography was used strategically there. With that said, after my first viewing, my rating here would be above average, and I think this one I will revisit again at some point just to see how I really feel now that I know everything, how it plays out. But at this time, I'm sitting on a 7.5 out of 10 for After Midnight. And then for number 39, I have We Are The Missing. This is one that the writer and director actually reached out to me via social media to check his movie out, and it's free on YouTube. And this is one that I've actually seen a lot of his shorts from, I believe it's Andrew J.D. Robinson. And I have to say, I thought he did a great job here with this feature, feature debut. It's an interesting story that is grounded in reality with subject matter, and it almost goes into like a mockumentary feel as well. But then it is mixing a bit of the supernatural. There's a feeling of dread that builds throughout the movie, and a lot of that is just the story they're using, and I really like that. The acting, I thought, worked for giving you know, an amateur feel, and my slight issues were very minor with that. The soundtrack coupled with this really works for me in building up that vibe. There are a few scenes that I do feel like is kind of filler, and that could be trimmed, but I never got bored, so I'm not going to you know hold that against it too much. I would say that this is... Uh, nitpick as well but nothing of this you know kind of ruins the movies i was saying and my rating here would be that this is an above average movie after my initial viewing of it and once again i'm coming in at a 7.5 out of 10 for we are the missing and then in the position of number 38 is spree another one that i've already covered earlier on this episode so i'll just kind of reiterate that my rating here was a 7.5 out of 10 and then for number 37, I have Bab, another one that I got to see at the Nightmares Film Festival. I believe this falls into the thriller category technically, and some people might look at this as not horror as well, but this is one I thought was interesting. I can't really say that it's completely a horror movie, but I do think it has enough elements, you know, to consider it to be adjacent. I think that the time period is set was good with the 50s, the backdrop of annihilation from, you know, nuclear war potentially, while living in fear with this religious zealot really makes this, I don't have a feeling of dread for me. The acting really helps to bring it to life, and I think that the rest of it worked well in creating this world. If I did have any issues with it, I think it runs a bit long, and I lose interest near the end. Regardless, I think this is a good movie. I can't recommend it to everyone, but if some of the things that, you know, I kind of have said here or in my you know more in-depth review, I would definitely say if it works for you or those are the things you like, give this a viewing. So my rating for Bab is a 7.5 out of 10. And then coming in at number 36, I have The Babysitter Killer Queen, another movie that I actually watched on Netflix here actually, and thought that I wasn't necessarily sure what we were gonna get with a sequel, but I ended up enjoying this. We are getting more of the same that we got in the original, so I say if you like that one, you'll probably like this one. But the things really kind of added on worked for me, and the mirroring of things from the original was good. The acting helps this movie, and I think that the comedy from them is good. It does go a bit over the top with some of the gore, but the practical effects work for me. The soundtrack helps with my enjoyment. I never got bored with this movie, and I think that it does just does some things that were fun. I would rate this as an above-average movie, just borderline on being good, and came in for The Babysitter Killer Queen, a 7.5 out of 10. And for my position of number 35, I have Blood Vessel. This is one that I picked up and checked out on Shudder because of, you know, just trying to get in these watches. This is one that I thought it was pretty solid. It doesn't, it isn't one that blew me away, but it knows what it's trying to do. For me, it ticks a lot of boxes of things that I find interesting, like the supernatural Nazis and containing it on a ship. I think the setting really works for me and giving it that contained feel. I don't have any issues with the acting, and the really thing I only question is more with the writing. I thought the effects were good for the most part, just some issues with some green screen CGI. 
I like what they did for the look of the vampires. I just wish we got more of them and kind of went more, you know, crazy with some of the blood and gore. But the soundtrack, I thought, worked with a combination of the music and ambient noise. I don't think this is a great movie, but one that I did enjoy checking out. For me, this is an above-average movie, you know, just shy of being good. And for Blood Vessel, which is I also think is a kind of fun pun with a few different things here, like veins and, you know, a ship and having vampires and everything like that. So I came in for Blood Vessel as a 7.5 out of 10. And then another one that I covered earlier on this episode as well is going to be Spiral, and that is coming in at number 34, one that I did check out on Shudder. And this one, I came in with a 7.5 out of 10 just to kind of reiterate my rating on it, and then it comes in at this position. And coming in at number 33 is Alone. This is one that Jamie and I saw at the Gateway Film Center. We actually, you know, did a joint review here on the podcast for this one as well. This is one that, you know, kind of just popped onto my radar as I saw like a trailer for it and I got the chance to see it, of course. The concepts aren't new, but I like what they combine, you know, the couple of different types of films that I enjoy and we have two great performances to drive it. The movie is intense and really does a great job at building tension. Something I really didn't go over would be that the soundtrack and how that helps to drive it as well there aren't a lot in the way of effects but it doesn't necessarily need them we get some practical and those work really well the cinematography is also amazing in my opinion for this i would rate this as an above average movie just borderline on good and one that i would definitely revisit just to see how it would hold up for me and everything like that and i like how they kind of take some tropes that we normally see and kind of you know mess with them and that kind of worked for me as well so for the movie alone i came in with a 7.5 out of 10. And then coming in at number 32 is another one that I saw at the Gateway Film Center very early on in the year. This one is Come to Daddy. This is one that I did really enjoy. It went in a direction that I wasn't necessarily expecting, and the premise behind where they came up with the story is interesting. This is a brutal film that kept my interest, and I like how everything plays out. The acting was strong, and it doesn't outstay its welcome. The effects did look realistic, with them mostly being practical, which, you know, big fan. The soundtrack didn't necessarily stand out, but I had no issues there. The use of the sounds throughout the house was effective, and I would say that this movie is above average, and I might be one that I need to revisit again as I was going to do it before the end of the year, but I just didn't get around to it. So I ended up coming in with a 7.5 out of 10 for Come to Daddy. And for number 31 is going to be a documentary that I got to see at the Nightmares Film Festival of Hail to the Deadites. This is one that, you know, I didn't come in and expecting a documentary where you're going to learn more about the franchise because that's not what this one really is. It's really more about seeing how the fans and how the series has changed their lives. I really like that experts in the horror field were interviewed as well as many people that you could get you know, from the movies themselves. There's even an interview with Bill Mosley who appeared in Army of Darkness, which I didn't even recognize that he was in it. I keep forgetting that. It's one of those things where I end up looking it up and realizing it. So if you're a fan of the Evil Dead series... I think this would be a really fun watch just to see how passionate fans of the genre or even certain films can be. And I really enjoyed this and rated this as a good documentary in my opinion. And Hail to the Deadites is going to be the first one that is going to be bumped up as we are now sitting at an 8 out of 10 for this movie. And then coming in is another documentary that I got to see at the Nightmares Film Festival of The Quiet Revolution, State, Society, and the Canadian Horror Film. This is one that I really enjoy that they delve into breaking down how the history of film industry in Canada and how important to the horror genre that it was. I would really recommend this if you are like me where you like to learn about the past of the genre and that is something you know that kind of sparks your interest. 
there are quite a few knowledgeable people that we get to hear from here. It is interesting to see the correlation of where things start to where they are now in this first part of the documentary. And I'm pretty sure that this one was the full, like, two parts of it because this is broken up into two different sections. It's quite informative. Love the clips that they show from the movies they're, you know, referring to and hearing stories that really kind of pulled me in. I would rate this again as a good documentary and would recommend this for sure for those of you that like horror docs out there. So for The Quiet Revolution, State, Society, and the Canadian Horror Film, I would give it a 8 out of 10. And then for number 29, I have Extraordinary. This is one that Jamie and I watched on VOD as I think this one was supposed to be showing at the Gateway Film Center and they had something set up with I think like Kino Now or something like that where we got to rent this through there, watch it, and some of the proceeds went back to the Gateway Film Center. This is one that horror comedies don't always work for me. They can be definitely hit or miss. I thought this one worked. The concept is interesting. I like the story that it has some depth to it. I think that the acting really helps to bring these characters to life. So the depth of the character, you know, building towards what happens feels real. I do think the pacing is hurt slightly with how little time is given, but it doesn't ruin the movie. The effects were solid across the board, and I thought the soundtrack really worked for what was needed. I would say that this movie is, you know, good overall, and really a fun one. I wouldn't say this is for all ages, but a solid horror comedy for adults for sure. And then, so for Extraordinary, I came in with an 8 out of 10 on this movie. And for number 28, I have another one that I got to see at the Nightmares Film Festival and actually watched this one with Jamie, even though that it is subtitled and the movie is To Freddy. This is one that is interesting. It was actually one of the thriller films, I think, for Nightmares Film Festival. And there were some parts that I could see that, you know, people might be questioning if this is horror or not. But I think that there's enough things that end up and the sense of foreboding really make it enough, you know, to put it in the genre. This is an interesting premise. It doesn't need a lot of fleshing out, but we get enough. The acting is what really carries it, and it does feel a lot like a group of friends to me. Everything else just kind of worked for what was needed, in my opinion. I'd rate this as a good movie, and I'd say, just so you're aware, that this is from Norway, so I'd watch it, you know, in Norwegian with subtitles on. So if that's an issue, I would avoid this. If not, I would definitely give this one a view, and especially if you were into potential time travel and kind of... Stuff along those lines that can come with it as somebody you know in the future. But my rating for 2 Freddy is an 8 out of 10. And for position number 27 is Black Bear. Another one that I watched from Nightmares Film Festival along with Jamie. And this is one that was definitely kind of a weird one. I've seen some people debating back and forth if this is horror or not. I consider it to be enough as I have it here. But this is really driven by the acting as well as the situations that they're in. The telling of it is in two chapters which I think is interesting. Since they're different while also being very similar, it's kind of a cool thing they do there. There aren't a lot in the way of effects, but it doesn't need them. What we do get here is mostly practical and they look good. The cinematography is well done. As this is a beautifully shot movie, it is framed very well. Aside from that, the soundtrack fit for what was needed. It doesn't necessarily stand out, but it does all doesn't need to. Overall, I would say that this isn't going to be for everyone. It is a slow burn and it feels something akin to like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. It is another one that, again, many might not consider a horror. I mostly kind of feel it is because of this imposing you know, feeling of dread and the effect that it has on these people as it drives them mad. I do think this is a good movie overall, and I would actually recommend this to horror and non-horror fans alike. And my rating here was going to be an 8 out of 10 on Black Bear. And for my position of number 26, you know, just outside of that top 25, I have The Room. This is one that I saw very early in the year on Netflix. I thought this was pretty enjoyable. I like the idea of this house in the middle of nowhere having this dark past and harboring a secret. 
I really it really allows you know to have your heart's desire but things don't always work out as you plan so this is really one of those be careful what you wish for type things thought the acting does well in bringing these characters to life I do think that it has some parts where I wanted a bit more and I kind of waned in interest but not enough to necessarily ruin things there's not a lot in the way of effects, but it also doesn't need them. thought the soundtrack was fitting for what was needed, and I'd rate this as a good movie. I thought it could possibly be a contender for the year-end, depending on how, you know, movies kind of play out. And, you know, I thought maybe even especially with this pandemic and, you know, lack of some things coming out. But this one does fall short, and this one I rated for The Room a 8 out of 10. And then to start off the top 25 now, I have The Wretched. This is one that Jamie and I watched on VOD as I heard some stuff about it. Thought it looked kind of interesting, so I gave it a viewing as well as, you know, her joining me. This is one that I was kind of glad that I did. I think we have an interesting concept with this creature. And that one also kind of, you know, borrowed from a few different things, you know, kind of make of its own, which I kind of think is cool. There are some slight issues with the logic that I had, but the acting was solid. The effects for the most part are good. I never got bored and the soundtrack fit for what was needed from what I could remember. For me, this is a good movie in my eyes. Another one that I thought had potential to be, you know, a top year-end. It does make my top 25, so there is that. And I do like there's a kind of interesting reveal near the end of this one. But this one, like I said, does, you know, kind of fall short being at number 25. But for The Wretched, I came in with an 8 out of 10 on this movie. And then sitting at number 24 for me is Open 24 Hours, which is kind of fitting that this fell at this position on my list, actually, now that I'm kind of thinking about it. But this is one that I really wanted, you know, to check out before, you know, the year end. And that's, I have to say, is that it's not bad. This takes the slasher genre where we've gotten a lot of replicas throughout the years. And it does something a bit different for me. I like where this movie goes and it kept my interest throughout. thought the acting really helps here. And I, as I get to know the characters and they're all pretty likable in my book. And I also like what they kind of do with the unreliable narrator. And it's something a little bit different than what you see. The effects were done mostly practical, which I'm always a fan of. I think the soundtrack helps this movie as well. I don't really have any major gripes with it, but I would have to say that this one is just a good movie in my eyes, and I came in with an 8 out of 10 on open 24 hours. And then at number 23, I have another one that I saw at the Nightmares Film Festival. This one was one of their thriller films, but this one definitely, I think, has much more horror elements than some of the ones that were listed just as straight horror there. And this is, if I haven't said the title, is Meander. This is one that I did see on Mark Nato's list for 2021. So this one is probably coming out here pretty soon. So I would definitely recommend giving this one a viewing. And this is one that I really ended up enjoying. It is one that I, like, it came in very, I knew very little. And it just kind of immersed into what was doing here. How they introduce things is a subtle way. And build on those things is pretty well done. This really has a small cast of characters. Mostly focusing on Weiss, who is our lead. Her performance is great, and I give credit to the other ones in support, and that goes to like characters like Lisa that you know helps her to kind of decide if she needs to survive or not. The effects, setting, and cinematography were all good. The soundtrack fit for what was needed, and there's a good blend of sci-fi in this. What I did like here are the sounds and the setting that comes from it and the echoing of the yelling as it does make it kind of feel even more eerie. That helped to build tension. This is, like I said, an interesting little sci-fi horror thriller in my opinion. Found this to be a good movie. And one that I definitely want to watch again, so I will probably try to here in 2021. And my rating on this movie was an 8 out of 10. And that is for Meander. And then coming in at number 22 for me is Peninsula, the sequel to Train to Busan. This is one that I got to see in the theater when they opened back up for a stretch before they kind of closed down around me again. But I do think they are back open now that I think about it. 
but this is one that I didn't know what I was expecting, you know, when I came in, as I really liked the original one, and I kind of avoided the trailer, and really just wanted to kind of come in as blind as possible and just let it kind of do its own thing. I would say that they do a really good job in keeping the feel of the first movie while giving us a new group of characters to follow. The acting really helps move this along with the effects of the movie. The social commentary that we get really helped for me as well. Aside from that, the soundtrack fit for what was needed, but didn't necessarily stand out. I would rate this as a good movie. It falls short of the original, but that's a tough act to follow up with. And I will warn you, this is from South Korea. There is a bit of English in it, but it's mostly in Korean, so there are subtitles. That's a problem, I would avoid this. If not, I would say that I like how what they do with these running zombies. This is a pretty good movie with its own mythology. This one does lean more into being a kind of action film, so if that's a problem, I would avoid it for you as well. But my rating here on Peninsula is an 8 out of 10. And then the last movie for this little section here is going to be one that I got to see the screener for when the writer and director actually sent this to me. And the movie is Murder, Death, Koreatown. This is one that I think is an interesting piece of cinema that's kind of difficult to do. I think there's an interesting story here of an unstable person thinking there's a conspiracy going on around him that only he can kind of uncover. There's some social relevance to it. I felt very similar to things that the main character has, just not on that level. The acting and cinematography feels amateur, but I think it really should to help, you know, give that feel this movie's going for. Coupling all that with the ambient soundtrack, it fits. The music in it doesn't bother me as it is edited by someone else, so I'm fine there. If you don't like found footage, I would avoid this. If you do, though, I would recommend giving this a viewing. It has a feel of the Blair Witch Project except in the city, but with the amount of effort they put into this to hide the information in this day and age is really enjoyable. I would rate this as a good movie and one that I found quite interesting if you couldn't tell. And The other thing I kind of wanted to say here about it as well is that... It's interesting that I saw this at the very beginning of the pandemic because there are some kind of elements that also kind of incorporate that, especially with how many people are out of work right now as well. But that's all I kind of really want to delve into here for this movie. So for Murder, Death, Koreatown, I have an 8 out of 10 on this movie. Like I said, just shy of that top 20, just missed out on it. But what I'm going to go ahead and do though is kick over to one more musical break, rest my voice a little bit before I get into my top 20 and end out this list of my favorite horror films for 2020. Yeah. 
welcome back once again. And then to start off, my top 20 of 2020 is going to be Blood Quantum. Now, this is a movie that I originally saw on Shudder, you know, a few months back and then gave it a rewatch. This one was sitting pretty firmly in my top 10, but just fell out after that second viewing as it didn't hold up as necessarily well as I wanted it to. But this is one that I'm glad I gave it a chance. It has some interesting concepts in my eyes. And there's an interesting take on the zombie genre that is a bit played out at times, in my opinion. I like that they made this about, like, race that has been, you know, marginalized and telling the story from their point of view and putting them back in charge, especially because most of us are living on lands that were theirs originally. The acting helps to bring this to life. The effects are on point, aside from a couple blips here and there. The soundtrack I also thought was good, and but didn't really necessarily stand out. I will admit, though, this one, as I said, did come down in rating for me after the second viewing. Not to say that it's bad, I just think it's a good movie still, and that it, you know, is definitely still a contender for my year end. It just, you know, fell out of the top 10, but does firmly stay in my top 20 at this time, as I came in with an 8 out of 10 here on Blood Quantum. And then sitting at number 19 for me is Metamorphosis. This is one that I decided to check out on Shudder, as it kind of came in with those... A drop or a bunch of them kind of hit Shudder all at the same time, and I knew this was also one of the foreign ones that did as well. But this is one that I thought was actually really good. I'm glad that I didn't pass this one over as, you know, end up becoming a contender for my year end, even though it doesn't make that top 10. It isn't necessarily the most original story, but the demon that they use in this one does some things that set it apart. I like the family dynamic, and I thought that was really good, and that brings some good heart to it as well. The acting performances really carry this movie. The practical effects were really good, although I didn't love some of the CGI, but not all of that was bad either. The soundtrack doesn't necessarily stand out, but it also doesn't hurt the movie in my opinion. Overall, I would say that this is a good movie. I will warn you, this is from Korea, where I watched it with subtitles, so if that's an issue, I'd avoid this. For those that aren't bothered, we have a solid possession, you know, exorcism type movie here. And I thought for Metamorphosis that this was an 8 out of 10 for me. And then at number 18 for me is going to be Sputnik. This is one that I saw was showing on Hulu. And it was one that I was going to watch about a month or so before I got around to it where I had to run it on VOD. And then I saw that it was free on Hulu since I'm already paying for that. But this is one that I really also end up enjoying. I'm a fan of these sci-fi horror movies. And I like this one is set in the past without beating us over the head with that idea. It really makes a lot of sense for a Russian movie like this, being that, you know, having it in the Soviet Union where their rules were so strict back then, the acting is strong across the board. And I really like the concept this movie is exploring with learning about this creature. And the more that we do, the more horrific that it becomes. The effects were on point, and I like the soundtrack for, you know, the more exciting scenes. If I do have a gripe, I think it's a bit too long, and it was kind of bogged down a little bit in the middle. With that said, though, I still found this to be a good movie, and definitely worth a viewing. What I will warn you is that I watched it with Russian, you know, dialogue and, you know, Russian sound with the subtitles on, so if that's a problem, I would avoid this. But I think this is definitely an interesting alien movie that is... You know, not the most original, but it does take some things and, you know, has some pretty interesting ideas that they're kind of exploring here, especially setting it in the Soviet Union, as I've already said. But for Sputnik, I came in with an 8 out of 10 on this movie. And then for number 17, I have Rent-A-Pal. This is one that I thought was interesting. This has a really good character study of David and the rough life that he's living. I think the performance of Fulkins really brings him to life. And it's almost kind of like he could actually be this character is what I said in my, you know, reveal that I did of this movie. Seeing how he can get sucked into watching this tape of Andy and 
how heartwarming while also being sad that can be is definitely something I really enjoyed. It also feels like, much like Sputnik, is that it feels like the era that it's taking place in without going too far over the top for that. The cinematography and sound design really worked for me. And for my rating of this movie, I said that this was a good one in my opinion. And I think that it's definitely worth the viewing if you haven't got around to seeing it yet. I can see some people arguing that it might not necessarily be horror, but I think, you know, the descent into madness and everything that we get with that is definitely, you know, firmly there for me. But I found Renapel to be an 8 out of 10 for me. And at number 16, I have Impetigore. This is a movie that I end up really enjoying as well. Now, Jocko Anwar does some interesting things here again with this movie, and it would pair well with his other film of Satan and Slave in some of the themes that they are kind of exploring. I like the blending of the old world with the new modern world with religion, as well as some of the other aspects to this story. The acting is solid across the board, and there's also some good social commentary there as well. The effects and soundtrack are both good and helping build the tension along with the feel of the movie. The last thing that I really kind of want to bring up as a cinematography is both creepy and beautifully done. Now I'd say this is a good movie overall and one that I do definitely want to revisit now that I have seen it at least once. I will warn you that I believe this is either from the Philippines or Indonesia. It's one of the two. I do apologize for not looking that up ahead of time, but definitely a movie that explores some interesting aspects and you kind of really get a good look at the different culture that this movie is coming from but for in pedigree i came in with an eight out of ten here and then to start off my top 15 i have the hunt this is one that i was kicking myself that i didn't get a chance to see in the theaters before that it left as covid you know kind of came down as this movie you know came out and this is of course the one that was supposed to come out last year but they kind of pulled it i believe for more of like a publicity stunt as it was, you know, supposed to be too just crazy with some of the things they're doing. This is one that I also kind of avoided is that I didn't really want to pay that $20 fee to rent it. So when the price came down, Jamie and I did give this one a viewing. I do think that I, like I said, that I'm finally glad that I got around to seeing this. As this one was bothering me as I knew a lot of people were speaking highly of it. And I knew I needed to see it before the end of the year. And this one does some really good stuff with social commentary and playing with it in a way that I can respect. Some of it's over the top, but I'm a forgiving of that as it is a satire. The acting from the two leads were strong, and the rest of the as support of them. And I really think that Betty Gilpin and Hilary Swank are pretty solid in this movie. And I also like kind of seeing Ike, I think it's Barnholtz as well in a kind of supporting role on there. The effects are good, and for the most part I thought the cinematography was as well. The soundtrack didn't really stand out to me, but I, you know, it never really kind of affected me while watching it. Not everything worked with it, though, in my opinion, and I do find some of the material to be a bit problematic. My rating here would be that this is a good movie, and I do really need to revisit this just to see if this rating would be solidified there or if it would go up or down from there. I also can't recommend this to everyone, is that I think some people are going to enjoy it, and also some are going to despise what the movie is doing, especially if you don't really have much of a sense of humor. If you have thick enough skin, though, I think this is a fun movie and does have some good social commentary, as I said, in general. So my rating for The Hunt is an 8 out of 10. And then for me, sitting at number 14 is Host. This is one that I thought was pretty effective. Is this going to be one that is loved and found terrifying for everyone? No, I don't think it will be. But it worked for me, and I like the realism of the length of the movie with a Zoom session. I will say is that I do wish it was just a little bit longer and had a little bit more in it. And that is kind of why it has fallen to, you know, the spot that it is currently. 
What they did well, though, is the haunting of these people I thought was good, and it uses things that kind of freak me out. The acting isn't great, and it doesn't have to be. It felt natural, and this group feels like they all have known each other for a while, and that they're all friends. And I also picked up on little things about each one of them for what they do in it. The effects were good, and the ambient use of noise and sound was really well done. I would say this is a good movie, and would recommend it if... You know, what I'm saying here does work for you. This is also another one that I, Jamie and I watched, and this one terrified her, and it also kind of freaked me out as we were watching it streaming on Shudder. So my rating for the host here is going to be an 8 out of 10. And then I have sitting at number 13 is Sea Fever. This is one that Jamie and I watched on VOD as we gave this one, you know, rented it when I needed a featured review for here on the show. And I actually thought that this one might end up making my top 10 list, but as you can see, it just fell short of it had been pretty high for me all year and I was going to give it a rewatch but there were so many movies that I watched here you know late in the year that kind of jumped over this one so I ended up you know not giving it that second viewing but I will at some point this is a solid film though in my opinion it does really feel like taking things like Alien or The Thing just putting it on a boat while doing its own thing still the duality of the fishing lore with science was something that really intrigued me especially because our main character you know being the student that she is is trying to investigate and look into everything the acting really carries this and the attention amounts with you know being isolated and there's also some really interesting social commentary here as well you know watching this during a pandemic is that they're faced with needing to either quarantine themselves on this ship or potentially spreading everything into you know the wider population thought the cgi was pretty solid and the practical effects with it also worked the soundtrack didn't really stand out but it also doesn't hurt anything i really liked what they're doing here and i think this could possibly you know could have been a contender for my year end, but you know, it did come up short. I didn't give it that second viewing to see if it would have, you know, moved up or not. But my rating here for Sea Fever was an 8 out of 10. And for my number 12 film on my list here is The Cleansing Hour. Now, I do know there's a little bit of contention here, as this might have been available on VOD last year, but I ended up watching this on Shudder, and I think I've seen some other people putting on their 2020 list. Regardless, it didn't really crack my top 10, so I'm not too overly concerned with it, but. This one that I said I watched on Shudder is another movie that I heard people speaking highly of it, and I'm glad that I gave it a viewing. The premise and concept are something that really just kind of ticks many of my boxes with religion, exorcism, and having taste of found footage in there. I think that the acting really helps to bring these you know, characters to life, along with the effects and the soundtrack, really helped to build that creepy atmosphere. This is another movie that I found to be good, and I definitely do want to give this a rewatch just to see if I might have missed anything with it. Definitely kind of worked for me, and for the cleansing hour, I came in with an 8 out of 10 on this movie. And then my number 11 film is one that was pretty firmly in my top 10 until the rewatch that I gave to it, you know, here near the end of the year. And then some movies that I watched as well near the end also kind of took this one down a little bit for me and that is vivarium jamie and i originally watched this on vod and then i gave it a rewatch as i believe it was streaming for free on amazon prime for that second viewing this is one that i really like the concept of the movie and the story they're presenting us we get some interesting social commentary here that i can appreciate especially with like the housing market and you know being in the suburbs how that can kind of take away your identity thought the acting was good across the board Poots does a really good job, and that's Imogen Poots as the lead. The effects we get, I like how that was done, and the use as well as like not using of color was strategic. The soundtrack I thought was pretty solid across the board. There's some actually some songs that I actually really enjoyed, and then you know just more of the instrumental also works for helping set the tone. I thought this was a good movie, and one that I would like to 
you know, periodically come back to just because of some of the things, it really gave me an uneasy feeling. And I'd actually, you know, recommend this to horror and non-horror fans alike with some of the things that we get here. Vivarium, though, does just fall short of my top 10, as I still came in with an 8 out of 10 after the second viewing for this movie. And then to start my top 10 is actually an interesting one here, is that it is Color Out of Space. I saw this very early into the year, and this one was in my top 5 for most of the year. And then I did give this a rewatch with Jamie as it was, you know, streaming on Shudder. So we, you know, watched this one together for my second viewing. And I have to say is that I really like what they're doing here as I just have some slight flaws with it though. I think that Richard Stanley does a great job of taking on this Lovecraft story. And I have read the story. I didn't read it before the first viewing I had, but I did after the second view in between, you know, that first and second viewing here. I think he does great at adapting this story as he does. It is quite creepy the route that they took it. There are some slight issues though that I have with some of the acting and the pacing for a stretch of this. I think the daughter in the movie does an excellent job where I do, don't really necessarily like Nicolas Cage in this movie. And then there are some really good things that it does with some of the concepts and social commentary that we get here, especially because they are scaling back some of the things with how we treat our water and everything. And I think that has some good social aspects here. The effects are on point and it is beautiful at times with the cinematography. The soundtrack and design there were really good. I've already heard some people stating that only the pretentious will like this, but that's fine. I think this is a good movie still in my opinion, even though it has you know fallen for the second viewing, but it is still one of the better films in my opinion for the year, and that is why it is coming at this position here, as my rating did come down though to an 8 out of 10 for Color Out of Space. And my number 9 film is The Platform. I saw this one pretty early into the year on Netflix and then gave it a rewatch here in the month of December just to see how my kind of thoughts went with it. This is one that I really enjoy despite its bleak look on the state of affairs in some places. This is interesting that it came out of Spain, but it hits so close to home for me as a resident of the United States. And I think there's some really good social commentary here, especially, you know, during a pandemic and looking at some of the more like potential socialist views that can kind of help things. I think that, especially with the allegory stuff there, I think that the acting is really good. And then, as I said, the allegories and what they're exploring, there are some really good effects in the movie and the soundtrack fit for what was needed. If I do have any problems though, I think it gets a bit boring near the end of the second act, early third act. I never fully lose interest though. I would say that my rating here is that this is a good movie and I'm glad that I revisited this uh, this year before the year end as it was, you know, as you can see, a contender for my year end list. And my rating did come up after that second viewing. And this is the first film that is, you know, a 8.5 out of 10 for me. And this is the platform. And then at my number eight position is going to be Relic. This is one that I watched with Jamie. We rented it on VOD. This one was still up for rent, so I didn't want to rent it again. So I didn't give it a rewatch, which I'm kind of bummed is to kind of see where this would land after that second viewing as I haven't given that one yet. I do think that I really dug what this movie was doing. I will say I had my expectations a little bit high as I heard how scary it was coming in. I even braced Jamie for it. I did find it had some creepy parts, but definitely wasn't as scary as I was expecting. I think she agreed with that as well. That's not to say I was disappointed or anything like that because I do like to temper my expectations. I think there's some really good concepts and I enjoy the underlying allegory. The effects were good and I thought that the acting is as well. The soundtrack fit for what was needed and the use of sounds from things in the movie does help to make scenes even creepier in my opinion. Overall, I would say that this is a good movie. 
I would probably, you know, need to give this one a rewatch once I can, you know, get it even cheaper than what it was last time I looked or to see if this goes to a streaming service where I can, you know, watch it, you know, for what I'm already spending on subscriptions. But still a contender, as you can tell from my year end. And my rating here on this movie is that it is a 8.5 out of 10 for Relic. And then sitting at my number seven position is The Invisible Man from 2020. This one, Jamie and I went to see this in the theater very early on in the year, and I gave it a rewatch during October as a part of some October movie challenges that I was doing. This one, I really like what they're doing here. It is really a sad tale that is based in reality, but seeing it take it to the extreme. I thought the performances really helped to build the realism, especially from Elizabeth Moss, and she just does an excellent job as this character. The concept is really good as well. Despite its longer runtime, I think that it works still, and I never got bored, aside from the final scene ends in a way that I don't necessarily love, but I do like what they're doing there. The CGI had some minor issues, nothing to ruin it, and the soundtrack fit for what was needed. This is still a really good movie in my opinion, borderline on great, and you know, as ends up being, you know, still a contender for my year end, it did slightly fall during that rewatch and my rating did come down i still think that it is good though and i still think that it should be seen and you know it's still definitely one of the better films from the year in my opinion and for the invisible man i came in with an 8.5 out of 10. my number six film here is going to be the golden glove this is one that i ended up really enjoying despite how bleak and dark that it is and it's kind of a weird thing to say because this is definitely a depressing movie it isn't one that is, you know, a feel-good movie, as I'm saying, and has really a dark look at life. There's an interesting setup to this movie as we learn about the main character of Fritz, and we see how horrible he is before he gets a little bit humanized and then fully becoming the monster that he ends up becoming in the end. I like the acting from Dossler. I think he does an excellent job as becoming this character and really helps to bring the story to life. The effects are brutal in a subdued way and well done. And I like how the sound design is used here as well. I can't recommend this to everyone just because of how bleak it is. But, you know, this is definitely an interesting serial killer movie. And also be warned that this is based in a, you know, true story that this person really did exist and did these things. It is also in German, so I watched it with subtitles on. If you can get past that, I think this is an enjoyable movie for a select group of people. It's good. Just borderline on great in my opinion. So for the Golden Glove, I came in with a rating of 8.5 out of 10. And now to get into my top five, which is kind of interesting because it is four movies, including this one that I'm going to give you here, that I all watched all of them during December during my year-end roundup, you know, for this end-of-year list. And a lot of them kind of jumped up really high for me. Kind of interested to see where they would all fall, though, after a second viewing. But as I said, coming in at number five here, I have The Mortuary Collection. This one I originally heard about around Halloween, and this is one that was really a pleasant surprise. Something I really enjoyed here is that when anthologies are done right, I'm on board. I like the four stories that we got and how the wraparound factored into the end, as I'm always a fan of you can, you know, strategically work that in. The acting really helps to bring this to life. The practical effects were good. The CGI, though, doesn't necessarily work for me. It doesn't also ruin it, though, either. I would say that the sound design and soundtrack worked as well. We had a nice mix here, and I thought the movie has a, you know, really good aspects to it and borderline again on being great i would be interested to see what i thought though after a second viewing but this is the first movie that i'm going to give a 9 out of 10 and that is the mortuary collection and another one of those movies is going to be my number four movie of the year of don't listen 
This is one that I'm glad I didn't sleep on. Seeing how high it was on some people's 2020 list makes a lot of sense after seeing this. The movie does some really good things with emotion along with a dark subject matter that it is dealing with. It really made me feel uncomfortable with what they did and the depth of focus with you know some of the shots and then the truth of what happens here and then also what this entity is forcing people to do. The soundtrack and sound design really help with the atmosphere. Thought the acting was solid and the effects were well done. I don't really have a whole lot negative to say if I'm going to be honest. I think this is a really good film out of Spain. And overall, I would rate this as a good movie. Once again, borderline on great. Another one, as you can tell, was a contender for my year end. I would be really interested, though, to see what a second viewing would do to this rating. But currently, I have Don't Listen sitting at a 9 out of 10 for me. And for number three, yet again, another one of those ones that kind of jumped up here late in the year. And that is the movie of Anything for Jackson. This is another one that I watched on Shudder as it was streaming there, and Jamie watches one with me, and this one did freak her out with some of the things that they're doing here, and it also upset her as well. And this is one that I thought, for me, was really good, and I'm glad that I didn't sleep on this one as well. I really like the concept that we got here, and the casting of McCarthy as well as Julian Richings in this role works. I'm a sucker for horror movies that play with the idea of religion like we get here. The rest of the actors also do a really good job in their roles. This one had some scares that really got to me, and I think that the effects along with the sound design really helped there. I'd rate this as good, once again, bordering on great. This one I'll be looking forward to revisiting, and you know to see where it would fall as you know it does end up as a strong contender here on my year-end list, but anything for Jackson after this first viewing, I gave a 9 out of 10 as well. And for my number two film of the year. This is one that I got to see at the Gateway Film Center when they opened back up a little bit after the pandemic, before they obviously closed once again, and that is Possessor. The first time that I watched this, I wasn't nearly as high on it. I kept seeing everybody, though, as they were giving this a watch, how high they had put it, so I decided to give this one a, a rewatch during December and ended up coming up on my rating for it. This is one that... I really enjoyed the concept and the story that they were building. The acting was good in carrying what they were going for and their realistic effects to give that body horror feel. The cinematography I thought was really good and helping for it as well. They do some really good things with how the shots were set up as well as some colored filters. And this really does help to kind of set some of the story aspects with it and I think that's strategic. The soundtrack isn't one that I would listen to regularly, but I thought that it fit really well for what they were needing from it. I'm glad that I did give this a second viewing as I noticed a lot more the second time around for it as again I've come up on my rating here. I don't think this is a perfect movie but it is really good. Not one that I can recommend to everyone as there are some quite vicious scenes and I don't know if everybody will necessarily like some of the more art house aspects to it either but if you can get past that I think this one explores some really interesting ideas especially incorporating some of the espionage aspects on top of that. So after the second viewing of Possessor, it has come up for me and I'm sitting at a 9 out of 10 on it. Not sure I'll ever go any higher than that for me, but it is really good. And like I said, glad I gave it a second go. And then for my number one film, something I just kind of want to reiterate here before I kind of delve into it and kind of reveal what that movie is, is I will say that this year, I can't necessarily agree with some people who believe this to be one of the strongest years ever for horror, as I think there are some really good films that got released here. What I will say is this might be the most consistent year that I've had, where I have so many movies that are all kind of hovering around the same ratings, and that is something I can give 
some really good props too for the year, especially because some of the you know key heavy hitters got pushed back to the next year. And I still think that we had some really good movies that came out, and that is I'm actually very thankful to have said. Now, for my number one film of the year, I only have given it one watch, and that one was pretty powerful and kind of freaked me out. This is one that Jamie and I rented and watched it together. This one also freaked her out as it made me feel uncomfortable, and that is The Dark and the Wicked. This is one that I watched it in December, and it shot up my list, and I think that it has some really good aspects, but it also has an ending that I thought was a little bit too abrupt to fully work for me, so I don't necessarily know if I'll ever go higher than this. It only would be slightly, but this isn't a perfect movie to me. Aside from that, I do think this is really good, though. The story ticks a lot of my boxes, as I've already kind of said here, with especially with the religion and some of the stuff that they're doing. I also grew up out in the country for a good portion of my life, so that all kind of freaked me out as well. The acting is solid for what was needed. The soundtrack and sound design of the movie is very creepy to build the atmosphere that was needed. I also had some issues with the CGI, but aside from that, the effects are good overall. This is definitely, as I said, my favorite movie of the year so far. I would like to give it that second viewing to see where I would go with it, though. I think this is another one that's a good movie, bordering on great. And Brian Bertino just does some excellent things. And I don't know if I've seen a bad movie by him yet. And I would really like to see him continuing you know, to make films. So this is kind of an interesting thing. But as my number one film of the year, this is still going to be sitting at a tie between my, I think just my top five right now. And that is with a nine out of ten. So I want to thank you, though, for listening to everything I said here. Before I close everything out, I'm going to get you over to one last musical break before I get into that outro.
and I want to welcome you back one last time. First, I'd like to thank you for coming on this journey with me here for episode number 61 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. And then just to close everything out here, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. Just let me know in the email if you want anything read on the show, any sort of questions or anything like that. Go ahead and send them to me. And if you just want to kind of send me feedback that you don't want read on the show, just let me know either way in that email. And then if you'd like to read any of the written reviews from anything on this episode or any of the past episodes, that's horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, it's David Michigan Garrett Jr. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, it's Buckeye from Mish. If you'd like to follow me on Letterboxd, it's David OSU. If you'd like to follow my personal Instagram, it's David OSU87. And there's also the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram, which is just Journey with a Cinephile, all one word there. And I will have all of those links in the show notes just to make it easier on you. And then the last thing that I would ask you to do that if you could go ahead and whatever podcatching device you're listening to me on, if you can go ahead and subscribe so that way you never miss a new episode. And the other thing I would ask is that if you could also go ahead and rate and review just so that way I can get to more people out there listening as well as to figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like just to make this the best show possible. And then for the next one is going to be my first normal episode of the new year, which is going to be New Year, New Me, number four. And then the movies that I'm going to be covering on there are going to be Hell House, LLC 2, The Abatted Hotel, which I've already watched that one. I just have to, you know, kind of compile everything there together and record everything. And then I'm also going to have a 2021 movie of Shadow in the Clouds, as that will be the, you know, first one that I watch for, you know, my journey for 2021 was I can try to hopefully get up to 100 watches on there. So that's all I really kind of want to delve into here in this outro. I won't keep you any longer than I have because this has been a longer episode. So in closing, what I'll just say to you is that whatever you do today, I hope you have, have fun doing it and enjoy yourself and also be safe out there. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr. signing off. It had been a wonderful evening and what I needed now to give it the perfect ending. <laughs>